we, we were winning everything, and all of a sudden it was just called off. The results tonight have been phenomenal. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, a while later, I am going to be speaking to Daniel Bestner about an article that he wrote for, uh, for Jacobin uh, about uh, a really weird incident about some war games in 2002. At the end of the episode, of course, there's Outlaws and Revolutionaries with the great David Griscom. Um, but, and, but right now, I am joined uh, by, uh, by Adam Proctor, uh, who is the host of, uh, of Dead Pundit Society. Uh, and uh, even, and I, you know, real heads may know uh, uh, that, uh, that I used to be a co-host of the Dead Pundit Society. And even though I've been, a, I've been resurrected, I'm a living pundit now. Uh, Adam is, uh, is a good friend and close comrade and, and someday I really wanted to talk with about uh, what I want to get into uh, for the next little while. Uh, which is uh, all of the horrible shit that has happened uh, this year for uh, from the perspective of the left and the terrible place that we're in, uh, and how to maybe navigate the balance between uh, not lapsing into counterproductive nihilism and also not sounding like the voice you just heard, which uh, would be uh, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, reacting to losing an election uh, by saying that it was very tremendous uh, and that he won, which is honestly what a lot of the left sounds like to me uh, from our perspective. So how are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing okay. Uh, I got to say, you know, <clears throat> pardon pardon the uh, the trip down memory lane and, and, and the shot to the fields, but my God, if our late friend Michael Brooks could be here to clown and, and cut this man uh, following his very public loss um, yeah, pour one out for Michael. Uh, that's the, 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 the first thing that I thought about when, when I saw that clip. But, uh, you know, lots to be excited about, lots to be nervous about as the days go on. My excitement about Trump's very public and embarrassing demise wanes as I, you know, as we see the, the sort of cabinet, uh, uh, likely cabinet picks and the transition team that's being assembled by Biden. It looks like the same old shit, doesn't it? It, it does, yeah. So, uh, so Bernie uh, was very publicly angling for the uh, labor secretary position. In fact, I think I just saw he's got like the Sunrise Movement, like doing like campaigning for him for uh, for labor secretary. Um, and that, does, you know, that's I think it's been made very clear that's not going to happen. Uh, there, there have been stuff all over mainstream media saying uh, that uh, saying that it's very clear that they're not going to do that, right? Which a smarter version of Biden actually might neutralize him, but, uh, but they're not going to. Uh, Elizabeth Warren um, was, uh, was angling uh, equally openly for, uh, for Treasury Secretary, uh, but uh, again, it's been made pretty clear that's not going to happen, which, which is sad um, that, you know, you're, you're going to do all that to, um, you know, to, to shift the left and, and ingratiate yourself to uh, the party establishment. Uh, and they're still going to leave you out in the cold. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the, uh, the list of names, of course, we don't actually have appointments yet, but the list of names that we know have been vetted uh, include people uh, like uh, Rick Snyder, who's the former Republican governor, or not Rick Snyder, sorry. Uh, although Rick Snyder did endorse Biden and um, that was touted, which after all the shit, about Joe Rogan endorsing Bernie uh, was, was awesome, right? This is the guy who uh, poisoned the water in Flint, Michigan. Um, and, you know, I don't mm. know that I'd give up my, um, 
death penalty abolitionism for him, but God, I'd be tempted. Um, and, but uh, John Kasich, uh, the, uh, the notoriously union-busted former governor of Ohio, is, is on the list of people who've been vetted by the transition team for possible cabinet positions. Charlie Dent, who's a Republican congressman who uh, re- um, resigned in 2018, and the moment, like the nanosecond, the legally mandated one-year cooling-off period was over, uh, he registered as a lobbyist. Uh, yeah. and had uh, declared clients that uh, included pharma companies, health insurance providers. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that along with, some, you know, again, these are Republicans who is considering for the sake of, of bipartisanship uh, and rewarding uh, the never-Trumpers who he thinks delivered the win to him. Uh, but, you know, the Democrats are going to be mediocre, you know, centrist Democrats, uh, and, you know, it's, it's not going to be Bernie. It's not even going to be. Uh, but uh, that's going to be a particularly dire situation, I think, also for us, because you think, OK, uh, we both wanted, you know, Biden to win. Right. I think we were both pretty clear on that. Well, we wanted uh, yeah. Trump to lose, right? Not so much Biden to win. Can we can we settle there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we wanted we wanted Trump to lose, knowing that unfortunately we're at a pass where the only way for that to happen, right, mm. was was for Biden to win, right, and and yeah. for uh, for people in swing states to you know do what they had to do. You did a um, pre-election extravaganza episode of Dead Pundit Society, uh, where where you had I think probably the most memorable. Uh, metaphor for that electoral decision that I've ever heard. If you want to just recite that real quick, which which one was that? I don't know. I'm I, I'm sort of a fly off the seat of my pants uh, m- most of the time. Uh, so, when I'm on the mic. so I think that, <laughs> I think that you were quoting Adolf Reed using this metaphor, um, but I think he was getting it from some old movie. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> Doctor Reed has this uh, amazing story from a totally not PC, totally not woke moment from a movie, I think in the 1970s. And it was something to the effect of like, he was talking, it was a, the main character was a sort of like this uh, very shy. Um, now this, I'm, I'm, this is a secondhand telling of a movie that I've never seen. So bear with right, me right, here, right. but the metaphor is important. Uh, this, this kind of um, lovesick, heartsick guy who's kind of a, you know, the, the, he's, a, he's, a, he's a bit of a virgin, not a Chad. And uh, I'm not sure if he is a real virgin in the movie, but he's kind of scared of women, scared of sexual right. uh, interaction. And, and he befriends this, uh, this prostitute, the sex worker. And, and they're having a conversation about sex. And, and it, at one point, she apparently, according to, to, to the, the good professor Adolf, uh, says something to the effect of, um, I'm going to fuck this up, Ben. What is it? It's, uh, you care about it so much. So I, I care about it so little that I'll do it with anyone. Right, 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 right. And you, the main character care about it so much that you won't do it with anybody. Right. And, and that's, and that's, I mean, that, that sums up for Adolf and for us, the, the, the voter fetishism that happens, right. Where, you know, you need to be like, you need to be like the, the sex worker here, the prostitute. You need to be like, you know, you need to care so little about it that you'll vote for anyone and you'll move on and, and go on with your business and, and not be like the, 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 <laughs> the virgin who, who cares about it so much that, that uh, he won't do it for anybody. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, um, instead of seeing uh, voting as this profoundly weighted act, yeah. um, that you know, which which I think is what's implicit is how I would never vote for Joe Biden or or whoever, right? You know, I would never vote for that person. Uh, you know, which whatever self criticism that's that's me, right? In some other elections in the past, um, yeah. 
you know, that, that I, I was, I was far too unchattish about this. Uh, but um, rather than saying that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so you, you say, look, um, let, let's just, you know, just, just treat it like you have, you have a choice about, you know, as what it is, right? You have a choice about what horrible thing is going to happen. Uh, and so you pick the horrible thing that you, you think you're most likely to survive, or you think is most likely to go well for you. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, um, I, you know, having a centrist Democrat in office is probably that, right, for, uh, for, the, for the electoral context, that uh, having that a centrist Democrat, um, you know, like, like Biden, you know, is, is certainly, um, you know, to, to put on the, the commie hat, right, you know, probably a, mm old fur hat with a faded red star on it, right? Certainly a, a class enemy. Uh, but uh, not all class enemies are created equal and, and they're going to pursue a different strategy for, for managing the system on behalf of capital. And there are both some concrete reasons and some discursive reasons why uh, this is a fight that would, would seem better for us, right? That uh, mm -hmm. the concrete reasons have to do with things like um, – you know, what Paul Prescott laid out in his article in uh, Jacobin about the National Labor Relations Board mm -hmm. uh, and the way that Trump has appointed hardcore union busters to those positions who were really aggressively crusading to stamp out what's left of collective bargaining in this country. Uh, and, you know, again, we, we have a better chance of surviving, you know, the labor movement surviving the yeah. sort of softer co-optation strategies of the Democrats. Uh, and the discursive reasons have to do with the fact that if in a fight between everybody else and right-wing Republicans, the left can sort of seem like, oh, maybe irrelevant, or maybe we can make our case that we would do a better job of fighting them than liberals would, but you know, then people right. doubt that, uh, and, and they, they worry that, that we're you know, just getting in the way of that, whereas a fight between centrist Democrats and the left seems much more advantageous to us. I agree with all that. Yeah. But, yeah. And so we need, we, in, in essence, to put, to put it in short, what you just said though, like we need to squash this Trump derangement syndrome because it's a terrible soil on which the, for, for the left to act on, isn't it? You know, it, it um, is. I mean, like, and, and really I think a sign of, of how terrible a soil it is, is what's been happening in the last uh, week or so, which is that while some of us are desperate to finally move on to, to talking about Biden, and, uh, and how bad the incoming Biden administration is going to be. Uh, what I, I certainly see, you know, every day on my Twitter feed, you know, for whatever that's worth, uh, is constant and unhinged alarmism about how Trump is going to yeah. stage a military coup or start a civil war, you know, uh, that, that fascism is going to be, you know, imposed sometime between now and, and January 20th. The only person that has anything to worry from Trump at this point in time, as far as I'm concerned, is Roger Ailes. I think, <laughs> yeah, because I think Trump right. might be serious about trying to challenge the uh, supremacy of Fox News after this. Uh, this It's a betrayal, folks, a betrayal. I won this election. It wasn't even close. Uh, but, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. What comes yeah, out. right. I mean, yeah, Ailes does have something to worry about from Trump. Mm. And I think it is entirely possible that Trump um, – does some sort of like strange, sad president in exile shtick for the next four years and, and whatever. I mean, I think he could, that could be an effective shtick for, for fundraising uh, from, from the faithful and, and, 
if he spends the next four years floating the idea that maybe he'll run again, that, that could really uh, screw things up for other Republicans who want to run in, in 2024. But I mean, it, it's about like it's about as serious a threat to democracy, in my view, as um, the um, you know mentally ill victim of of neoliberalism who's like living out on a street corner, you know, uh, where you know where where he's uh, he's standing there yelling about how. Uh, how he is the legally designated, you know, emperor of the uh, the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, no, I mean, this this isn't, you know, I, I think that Trump is not going to do anything. I mean, he's going to do the lawsuits, right, yeah. uh, which yeah. which he has been doing. Um, I, I'm not going to add to the 10,000 jokes that have been made about the total landscaping. Uh, and, you know, but I think that the patheticness of that is representative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, he, he's, he's definitely poisoned the well, right? I mean, he's definitely poisoned the well in terms of people's, you know, understanding what legitimacy is in our elections and in our political system, and all the rest of it. But like, you know, I mean, that alarmism is real and, and I share it, you know, people, my family, friends of mine who still think this thing is rigged. I mean, they, he's poisoned the, he's poisoned the public health ideology in this country by, you know, the virus, you know, that's killing people like this kind of shit you run into in every day of your, if you don't know these people, you're just, I don't know, you need to make more friends outside your political uh, circle because it's very real. And so that's, 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 that's damaging. But like what it, I think what we're getting around, we're like talking in circles about it's like, which is like, let's be, let's be explicit for the haters. Uh, yeah. If you have any, I don't know. You're such a likable guy. I don't know how you have any haters. Let's, let's get real. Like the, the, the problem is that the, the, the Democrats, right? The centrist Biden's is not, they are, um, they're, obfuscating their their role in in that kind of um process of delegitimation of the state and of, of the political um uh, institutions and, and the ability of like in the willingness of politicians to do anything that anybody want wants or needs in, in the world it's just you know it's just it's just another version of the of, of a of, it's just another sideshow right you know at this point and people know it and so the, you know what the liberal pundits and the the people who are clutching their pearls and, and shrieking about you know trump's coup is that like they're not um they're just distracting from the real culpability of the mainstream establishment democrats in in this decline in trust and legitimacy of our state and its institutions they are absolutely like i mean they may, they may not have been the pilot over the past four years like this this plane that was going down is uh you know a wing is half shot off and, and the tail <laughs> fins are, are dangling by a thread and we're all hanging on for dear life dear life you know it, it was piloted by trump but it was co-piloted by by the establishment democrats all along the way i mean they um they're culpable, right? I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, well, well, certainly, right. I mean, if nothing else, um, I mean, just really concretely, um, the the House of Representatives uh, controls, you know, controls the purse strings, and the House is controlled by, uh, you know, by Nancy Pelosi. So, so there's literally nothing that Trump has done in the last four years yeah. uh, that that she hasn't uh, funded, right? You know, like yeah. like that that the Democrats, you know, could, couldn't have decided to defund. But, you know, but that, that she that she didn't, you know, that, for yeah. you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, because in some cases there were things that, that uh, she and other people in the Democratic establishment actually liked and agreed with. Or other cases, there were just fights, right, that she didn't want to pick at that moment, mm -hmm. you know, for, for whatever reason. 
Let's be uh, honest. They're, they're, the, the establishment corporate Dems are essentially throwing their bodies as human shields up um, in front of their big uh, billionaire donor class right now to prevent uh, these left-wing demands that are extraordinarily popular from, from, from reaching their target, right, and, and being implemented as policy. And, and you saw the results of that in, in the election. The election results for the Democrats were, um, were astonishingly and surprisingly and shockingly bad, uh, you know, with this GOP that should have been such an easy target with this reality TV game show host at its helm should have just been, you know, one of the easiest elections to, to, to pull off in, in modern human history. Instead, these uh, establishment pundits have deluded themselves into believing that, um, you know, the, the people um, uh, give a shit about, you know, the kind of um, the adult in the room discourse uh, rather than, you know, paying attention to, you know, their, their jobs, their livelihoods, their, their prospects in the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. Surprise. No, I- no, Surprise. absolutely. Material demands win every, um, win every time, don't they? I mean, I just saw a stat that every single candidate who was pushing, uh, who had uh, co-signed the Medicare for All mm-hmm. bill won their re-election bid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and the stat that, that I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I heard it uh, is that um, Trump won Florida, of course. You know, take, take a beat for the fact that we were told that uh, Bernie couldn't be the nominee because he'd lose Florida because the Miami Cubans. Right. Uh, but Trump won Florida but a $15 minimum wage won in Florida by more than Trump did, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, again, I'm, I'm no doubt at all that um, most people who voted for the $15 minimum wage voted for Biden, but it's mathematically impossible. That there weren't people who voted for Trump and also who voted for that, uh, yeah. which, you know, which, which goes to the point that oftentimes people will sort of caricature what people in the Bernie movement and elsewhere were saying as, oh, we're saying that there's this vast pool of untapped left-wing voters out there. Right. And that's yeah. not it at all, mm-hmm. right? That most ordinary people, um, and this is not a slam, this, this just means they have better things to do with their lives, uh, don't have like fully well thought out, internally consistent, you know. They don't have an ideology at all. It's not a false <laughs> consciousness argument in terms of like, well, they're just, they're really out there. They really believe in these like, you know, coherent, like consistent left-wing yeah. ideas. No, no, they really need shit. No, exactly. Obviously. Right. Because, <laughs> like, what, what, like most people. like Food, people housing, and healthcare are not optional in this world, you know? And so that, that, that's the argument, right? No, no, exactly. Like, like most people, right? Ranging from the people that, that you're talking about, right? You know, who, who you know, might be friends or, or relatives who, who believe that Trump won. Um, up through, you know, up through your average, like, person on the street who, who hates Trump's guts. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people uh don't have political worldviews. They have, uh, you know, they have some political reactions to things. You know, they have, they have some political instincts. A lot of times different reactions and instincts point in wildly different directions, which is the point that that means that different people with very different standpoints could possibly appeal to them uh, in different elections with different programs. And as that $15 an hour in Florida stat shows, uh, one of the best ways of breaking through to people who might not necessarily agree with you on a lot of other issues is by saying, Hey, um, you know, wouldn't it be good if, if you, uh, if you made more money, right? Wouldn't it be good if you had healthcare, uh, et cetera. And of course, I mean, granted one problem, I think it's a problem everywhere actually, uh, as shown by like uh, what happened with the last general election in the UK, um, you know, that is that lots of people are so demoralized because we live in a neoliberal hellscape 
that uh, that they don't actually believe that politics can even achieve these things. You know, so it doesn't yeah. matter if you give them, you know, a Christmas wish list of things that sound great. They think, yeah, yeah, okay, obviously I'd support that. But, you know, whatever. I know none of that's going to happen, right? Like the real yeah. thing is whether Brexit is going to happen or not. So I'm going to vote based on that, for example, right. in that case. Uh, but it, it, the, claim is, the claim is not that there are like millions of uh, people who agree down the line with DSA on everything who don't vote. I I think we need to be real about this. Most Americans abhor the idea of even having an ideology. Right. It's gross. It's cringe. It's weird. It's like, get over yourselves, dude. I mean, think about every, every obnoxious guy. It's usually a guy, not always at the office or on your, your Facebook friends list. Not, not the people who are not us, right? We're fucking weirdos. We're politicos. We're, we're weird birds. Uh, Just a random person. You know, the most obnoxious person they can think of is usually someone who's like highly what they would call ideological. Right. And so like, you know, the reality is that most people would have held their noses and voted for Bernie Sanders in a hypothetical general, general election, uh, you know, in spite of his socialism, because they love the material offer so much. And so what you had in, in this election was these establishment Dems sort of running, running the ideology as uh, the late chairman Fred might have said, uh, you know, running, running, running ideology in, in the respect in, in, the, in getting the worst of both worlds. That on the one hand, you're going to get the socialism smear because you have elements like the squad inside your party now. It's something you have to deal with. It's an essential part of your base. It's your, like 90% of your activist base in, in terms right. of getting out the vote and the rest of it. Uh, so you have that, li- that discursive liability. Right. And when we were talking about the Gazanos in Florida or, or any these other types of uh, more reactionary uh, ethnic, for, formerly democratic um, ethnicities that you used to be able to count on for, you know, for, you know, checking those demographic boxes, um, right. demographic inevitability. Right. This looks to be uh, it looks to be dissolving in front of our very eyes. But anyway, so you, you, you eat shit there, but you also eat shit because you're not you're not providing a material offer of any kind to bring people on side. And so, uh, you know, and you get the worst of both worlds in that way. You know, people absolutely would have held their noses and voted for Bernie Sanders if he was pushing uh, that material offer in that way. Um, but what happens is you get smeared as a socialism anyway. Uh, you're offering them nothing of substance. And in fact, you know, Biden's reputation across the country, I think, in terms of the COVID response was just like, well, have fun sitting at home and not getting paid. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, and so that's, and right. that, that, that's, that's the, uh, the image uh, that, that immediately pops in the mind of workers across the country with respect to the grownups in the room. Yeah. The grownups shut down the economy and you don't get paid motherfucker, you know, <laughs> like sign me up for that. You know, like I don't care how much Trump as a clown, you know, like I, I got to get paid, you know, um, how am I going to put food on the table? So yeah, the I mean, give, both give, given the options of, uh, per, of what Trump was proposing, which is pretending the virus doesn't exist uh, pretty explicitly at some points. Like he yeah. said things that in the last weeks of the campaign, like, what Biden is telling you is no more, you know, high, no more weddings, no more high school graduation parties, right? Doesn't that sound terrible? So, by, so Trump is offering, enjoy your life and pretend the virus doesn't exist. And Biden was offering, um, yeah, we're, we're going to acknowledge it. We're going to do something about it, but it's going to be at your expense. Uh, and then it turns out, you know, more like the, the crisis is serious enough that more people went for the second thing, but also the fact that it was so fucking unappealing shows up in the fact that what was expected to be a blowout, what should have been a blowout uh, was such a nail biter that we had to wait four days to find out who won. 
Yeah. And, and all, and all because why? Because Biden couldn't do something as simple as a, what Justin Trudeau in Canada has done and what people across the country, uh, in New Zealand and Australia, you saw it across Europe and the Asian world. Um, you know, it's small, tiny countries like Singapore for fuck's sake, uh, ask people to stay at home and, and compensate them handsomely for doing so. Right. I mean, just even a minimum, a minimal, you know, $2,000 guaranteed subsidy throughout the duration of the pandemic should have been the, the primary demand. It should have been printed on every flyer, every mailer from, from Abigail fucking Spanberger all the way to Rashida Tlaib on the spectrum. That should have been the central demand coming out of the democratic party. But again, these establishment Dems are veritable human shields holding themselves up arm in arm between the left and, and the needs of the people on one side and, and their, their billionaire donor class behind them, you know, and you might throw some, you know, the, the PMC kind of paid prize fighters as Marx might've said, you know, in that, in that bunch as well, for sure. But um, you know, and that's, 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 they, that's where they see their role. And, and, and that's why they're doomed. And that's why we're fucked if we don't outflank them in the coming two, two years, certainly before the swing election, that's inevitable, I think, uh, in 2022. And in four years, when you, when you very well could see someone with the politics of Trump, but, but some perhaps like some, you know, like political uh, effectiveness. Uh, so the, the, again, the worst, worth about, worst outcome in, in both, uh, at least Trump was fucking, he was a buffoon. Right. He couldn't get anything <laughs> right, done. Right. He didn't have a coherent strategy. And don't yeah. listen to anybody who tries to tell you that, you know, I've heard a lot of takes now and coming from the British media, a lot of it, you know, people are still kind of lost on this Trump fan fiction from 2017, aren't they? It's like, he, look guys, he, he's not, he's not a criminal mastermind. I'm sorry. I've heard this coming from people who, with whom I otherwise agree. Uh, I've heard this take coming from, from Adam Tooze, even a brilliant man as such as he, you know, Trump is not a, a, a brilliant criminal master. Neither is Bannon, by the way. But Bannon's got a lot more uh, credibility in that regard than Trump does. And that's saying something. So, but what we're setting ourselves up for in 2024 is a guy with the, the uh, ideology of Trump, the ideas of Trump, the aims of Trump, but someone who's actually good at it. Yeah, right. I mean, the fact that Trump, you know, again, he's, he's, not, a, uh, he's not a criminal mastermind. He's also, by the way, like to believe, just to bring this back around, to believe that we're going to have like a real serious tanks on this on the street coup. And I know that some of you are listening to this say, Ben, this, this is a straw man. Nobody's saying that. Uh, to which I'd say like a few days before I was recording this, I was seeing a bunch of people say all sorts of alarmist things about, Oh my God, Esper's gone. You know, Trump is mm. putting Trump loyalists, you know, in charge of the Pentagon, you know, and yeah. definitely suggesting that that meant that there was going to be an actual military coup and to believe that, you'd have to believe that both he was much more of a criminal mastermind than he is, and also that he was much dumber or else much less greedy and self-serving than he is. Also because- more heroic, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 That's yeah. what you were getting at. Like, Trump's a pussy. He's a pussy. Yeah, yeah. He's not going to risk his life for this. He's got fucking golf to play. He's a billionaire. You know, he's got yeah, yeah. Well, pussy well, to grab. Well, you know, he's thing, not, right? not going to go down fighting this fucking weak, you know, uh, uh, a frail excuse of a man. It ha- doesn't have any values that he would die for. You know, no, that, that's, I mean, no, that's the, not, that's the, not big, at all. I mean, like, you, you guys are literally swallowing and perpetrating his own ideology, you know, his like Mussolini-esque, you know, uh, ideology, you know. Um, no, Trump, yeah, Trump would uh, shit his uh, pants and empty his bank accounts, you know, in order to, to avoid the, the fate of Mussolini. No, exactly. Right. Like, uh, even if he did somehow make convince uh, some generals to stick their necks out for him, and I don't know why they would do that. Uh, but yeah. even if he did, uh, then he's still doing something that has 
almost no chance of success that has extreme risk to him. Yeah. As you say, it's, it's buying into his branding. It's like, mm. remember when he said after one of the school shootings that if he was there, um, <laughs> even if he was unarmed, he would have like rushed in to the yeah, school yeah, yeah. to yeah. like take on the shooter himself. It's like, yeah, sure you would. Right. Yeah. Um, so, mm. you know, Trump, uh, yeah, I mean, Trump is is not a mastermind. Bannon's definitely not a mastermind. But Bannon basically has really good branding, uh, which, by the way, is is why I've always thought that you know when when Red Scare had him on and people got mad at them for doing that for doing that. However, they saw what they were doing in that conversation. I'm I've always been glad they did because usually when people argue with Bannon they really feed into his uh, Prince of Darkness, Brandon. Mm, uh, but mm. like instead they were like, hey, you say you're a populist. Why don't you support Medicare for all? What's up with that? Yeah. Uh, which is exactly the right way to, to take on, you know, people like this. Mm. So given that, Biden is becoming president, right? Maybe we'll, you know, maybe in two months we'll all be in concentration camps and I'll have to eat my words, but I really don't think so. So Biden is becoming president, uh, and we said earlier, we think, okay, discursively, this works out better for us. No more Trump derangement syndrome, mixing up the issue. And I still think that's true. But the thing that really particularly sucks about it are, is actually two things, right? One, um, I, when I talked to Glenn Greenwald, what he pointed out, which was that the, uh, which is that just because Trump's not going to be president anymore, uh, there, that doesn't mean that like seeing fascists behind the, every corner is going to go away. Right? Yeah, you know, it's a like, good like, grift if you got if you got it, right? I mean, that's that's the big thing. It's it, what I meant to say earlier, is, you know, it's uh it's not only very lucrative to to sort of build a, a political network, a political community on Twitter and write your books and, and take the speaker circuit and all the rest of it. Uh it's it's lucrative monetarily and for your career, but you know, in, in terms of the audience, it has a very kind of it's a, it's a big psychic uh reward there, right? To believe that you and your people are standing between the only thing standing between, you know, <laughs> imminent despotism and tyranny and all the rest of it. It's the same cosplay scenario you've seen from the, the liberal center, the extreme liberal center uh, over the past four years. And now yeah, it's sort and, of magnified. And, and, it's the last it's the last sputtering gasp of that of that uh, cosplay, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and, and I'm worried that, but I, I'm worried that its death is going to be is going to be very protracted, uh, and and that we're not like going to really see it behind it us nearly as much as we should with Trump not being president anymore, because there's yeah. always going to be some like there's always going to be some like Republican state representative in Montana saying something insane, uh, you know about uh, about how all the liberals should be shot or whatever. There's always going to be some like backwoods militia thing going on, you know, they're, that you can point they're, to. They're locked in a in a in a two two dual sided existential battle with one another, aren't they? I mean, both sides of that of that uh, grift. Um, one side happens to be extraordinarily more dangerous than the other, yeah, or the right, right, of course. And let's not care. You know, the survivalists will actually, uh, the militia types will actually try it, whereas the liberals are, are uh, you know, I don't know, fish out of water off Twitter. Yeah, yeah, right. No, for yeah, for sure, right. You're going to see um, QAnon versus uh, Elanon or something. I don't know. Like, what is uh, what's going to be? <laughs> it's gonna. It's just going to get silly. There's no question yeah. about it. And the question uh, is like, will the, will yeah. the discourse around Biden, um, you know, be, be reduced uh, in, in that in that uh, culture war babble over the next four years? If it does, we're fucked. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm very worried about that. Right. And then uh, that. We're, we're not going to be able to break out of the kind of culture war that we've been stuck in, you know, uh, 
for the last few years, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways for a much, much longer time, but like, you know, particularly awful form in the last few years. And then, um, and then secondly, uh, you know, there are still these special elections coming up in Georgia. And so it's just barely possible that there's like the slimmest possible democratic majority in the Senate. Uh, but that's probably not going to happen. Uh, Biden is probably going to have a Republican Senate, which by the way, is why um, Wall Street responded with ecstasy to the election results. Because mm-hmm. why wouldn't yeah. they, right? Uh, because they, yeah. they've got they've got everything, right? They've got a they've got a president who will you know take the virus seriously and not cause chaos, uh, mm-hmm. and they've got a Senate that guarantees that their taxes won't go up at all. Yeah, uh, it's, so, a, it's a win win. It's just gangbusters out out there in Wall Street. It's kind of convenient though that the Pfizer announcement came out with the vaccine trial this week because it's not now you know the, the now they. <laughs> It's like they have a lot of explaining to do if, if Wall Street just skyrocketed and the only news was that Biden looked to, like the clear winner, wouldn't they? But now they're like, well, uh, uh, clearly because probably because of Biden, but also the vaccine. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it would be a lot more awkward uh, for sure. Um, yeah, right. Like and, and, it, and, and by the way, I, I think, you know, we've got to give like everybody's uh, crazy uncle this that there is a political component to the fact that they announced this when they did and oh, not sure. like a week and a half earlier mm. because what they were announcing wasn't, um, you know, they weren't announcing, Hey, this has cleared everything and, and, it's, and it's ready to go. What they're announcing was looks good so far. We've got a few more weeks to be sure. So it's like, well, yeah. hold on. You couldn't have given us a look, you know, like, like I, I think that the, the Trumpist reaction to this is, is actually right. Right. I mean, like that, that, uh, that, that it is a political thing and it does indicate that they, mm-hmm. that they prefer Biden to Trump, which why wouldn't you, right? Like it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, give credit where credit's due. I think I'm stealing this from the, uh, the guys on the citations needed podcast. You know, they've got a good line about when they're talking about media bias, you know, when they say, yeah, sure. The media bias biased against Trump. Of course they are. They're also biased against cancer, right? Like that's, that's, that's not, yeah. you know, that's, that's not it. Like, yeah. you know, there, there are basic reasons why, um, you know, these blood sucking corporations uh, would dislike Trump that actually in some cases overlap with the reasons why people with the opposite interests would dislike him, which is that, um, which is that having a, um, a mismanaged or really unmanaged plague run rampant through society uh, is is bad for business, right? It's yeah. also, you know, it's right. also and, bad and more, for everything else. And, yeah, and it just from a macro perspective, to channel my old uh, mentor Leo Panich on this is that you know um, markets uh, don't run by themselves. Uh, you know, you have this thing called the relative autonomy of the state. Uh, but that also means that the state has to function within the parameters of the market, but then, but the market also has to function with the coordination of the state and, and you need state managers to, to step in, in a, in a, in a competent and serious way to help coordinate the economy and all of its complexity so that these, so that these bastards can keep making their billions. And they understand that there's only a, a degree of flexibility in those arrangements where they talk about, you know, well, we need deregulate and re- let the markets rip. And oh, but not too much though. <laughs> we, please, Daddy, come back, save us. You know now, and, and Biden's Daddy, that ba- Daddy's coming back to save the day and to coordinate the economy, to to re-regulate in a in a uh, rational way. You know, uh, which means a profitable way, a, a, a way that's going to be continually profitable for 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 everyone, such that a systemic crisis doesn't, um, you know 
come down on, 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 on them and, and all of us. So, you know, I mean, it's, it just goes to show. And I mean, I mean, I think, we, but we also need to be really careful in, about this too, because mm. you didn't ask the question, but I, I'll answer it anyway. <laughs> we need to be serious about the importance of managing the economy though, at the same right, time, of course, you know, and it's like, I think if, if the left is going to see itself and I know you, you could sort of brought me on to riff about the left over the next four years. And right. I mean, my, my, my whole thing, and I'm going to be here. I'm ha- I've always been hammered. I've, I've been hammering on it. I'm going to continue hammering. I'm going to double triple down on it is that the left needs to get serious about what it means to be serious. <laughs> the left needs to get serious about what it means to, 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 seriously portray itself as a competent, um, legitimate form of, 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 of authority and power in society that we, we are actually challenging for political power, even in the state. And, and we know what it takes and we're ready to do what it takes. And, and something about what it takes is it has to be being serious and being mature and being a grown up left, uh, joining the rest of the, the global left in its, in its maturity, right? S- something that the South and Central American left have, has long known is that if you want to be serious and you want to be able to take power, you have to be able to manage an economy. And how much shit did, you know, uh, did Moss get? Uh, the Movement for Socialism in Bolivia a couple of weeks ago when, you know, their, uh, their new leaders were talking about, you know, the importance of beefing up the economy uh, from, from, from American Twitter leftoids, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, these guys are so, oh, it just goes to show that there's neoliberals in the government now and they aren't the real Marxist left. Cause yeah, because, they yeah, want to, they want to boost the economy and get jobs for people. They're if grifters. They were, if they and, were like real appropriately, uh, hardcore socialists, uh, you know, they'd smash they, the state. They would be, yeah, they'd smash the state. They, they would be a big hammer. different to all consequences of anything that could happen. Yeah, uh, which for people in Bolivia who are starting out with a, a living standard that is unfathomably worse, you know, than the living standards of the people who are uh, who are making these comments. Uh, yeah, yeah I, and 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 also, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess it's uh, maybe this is my, uh, you know, this is my Trotsky showing. But if. Uh, if if you if you even could uh, achieve uh, full socialism in one country, uh, it certainly wouldn't be Bolivia. That's right. No, I don't think so. Now, you'd sooner start in Mississippi or something uh, yeah, yeah. in terms I'm, of I'm, economic I'm like power, this, this, this is not a, <laughs> like military know, this, uh, c- capabilities and all the rest of it. This is this is not a slam on financial on, power. There's like more <laughs> financial power in uh, Biloxi, uh, Mississippi, or uh, I got that right. Yeah, this, that's yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Then uh, it's on the border. I know. Yeah. Uh, then uh, then you know, in all of Bolivia, and so right, right. Uh, which which which, yeah, which, I mean, which 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 is not anything bad about Bolivia. It's just that. Right. Yeah, Yes, this this is a country that's been severely underdeveloped by colonialism and imperialism, uh, and so even like getting up to the level right of uh, of, of economy, an economy that hasn't had those experiences would be, you know, like would be a dramatic, you know, quantum, yeah. you know, quantum leap forward. And they're certainly not going to exist in hermetic isolation from from the world economy. Yeah. Um, w- without like really like having like famines and, and just like uh, not to mention extreme authoritarianism because that's the only way to get people to um, to live with famines you know uh, without yeah. uh, you know without doing anything about it uh, and and so yeah I mean I, I don't think um, you know I, I think that if being a properly radical socialist means that you think that Bolivia should become North Korea. Uh, then properly radical socialism doesn't sound very appealing to me. 
uh, nor anyone else. Uh, and so nor, you've had, you, you had a lot of people to shove into the gulags. I'll tell you right now, yeah. starting with me and and yeah. and pretty much everybody else who, by the way, uh, can throw a better punch than you and they're better arm than you are too. So good luck with that. The democratic road to socialism is the only one, only one that's available to us. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm very sorry to say. I know it's it's not that fun. It's not much like a movie. Uh, it's very much unlike 1917, perhaps. But uh, it's it's the only one that's available to us right now, and so we, we have to deal with that. But but again, yeah, you know, exactly. To, and, and by the way. Like, let's not miss the fact that this is actually a rare spot of extremely good news for the global left that, like, you know, uh, as much as they might not be Bolshevik enough for some people on left Twitter, uh, you know, this, this, the uh, Moss, you know, when Morales was in power, uh, did uh, tremendously uh, improve life uh, for ordinary Bolivians, you know, with, with, yes, with reforms, because that's, that's what's available, you know, at that historical juncture in that country at that time. Uh, and uh, and it was was removed by an actual fascist coup, right? Like not the one, not uh, it wasn't that there was some Bolivian equivalent of Trump who had press conferences and tweeted for a month, you know. But like the actual, like real serious kind, where the where the military tells yeah. the person who won the election they have to step down, and it was defeated, which is amazing and very rare. Uh, otherwise, what's happened in the last year? Um, I mean, I guess you can also include AMLO's victory in Mexico, I think more complicated politically, but, you know, but mm-hmm. a good thing. Uh, but otherwise what's happened the year last year was, uh, you know, the, the absolute boy went down in flames in the UK. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, lost uh, the, uh, the primary uh, in the U S uh, we are going to have uh, we're going to have a Biden administration that looks like it's going to be a Biden administration with some golden excuses uh, for for not doing much of anything to help people. Uh, most obviously, a Republican Senate. So uh, we're going to hear spend the next couple of years, at the very least, uh, hearing people say, "Oh, you foolish, irresponsible, you know, responsible leftists don't understand how the political process works." You don't know that Biden actually couldn't do anything that he's not doing because because the Senate uh, would stop him. Yeah, cocaine uh, Mitch is gonna is gonna step in and stop him. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna see a real cocaine Mitch uh, <laughs> after he's like you know uh, weekend at Bernie's there and his uh, his handlers are just like uh, rubbing pure Peruvian flake under his gums to get him to preside over the Senate. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't look well, man. He doesn't. I mean, I don't wish death on anybody, but my man looks, uh, my man McConnell's struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he should be, you know, his donors should agree to release him so he can, he can spend what time he has left with his family. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, and then also, uh, the fact that, uh, that the virus has caused, uh, this economic meltdown, which is partially recovered, but we're also looking at new lockdowns probably. For sure. um, and uh, I, I think there's very little chance of like the kind of serious Keynesian stuff accompanying that that might actually, um, you know, that might actually like sufficiently blunt the economic consequences of that. So, so hey, look, I mean, I know you guys, you know, want want Biden to, to do the new deal, but, uh, but come on, you know, we're, we're you know, uh, the, um, the economy is in shambles and there's a Republican Senate. He's doing the best he can yeah. is what we're going to hear from everybody uh, for the next couple of years. And, and I'm very, I guess I'm pretty pessimistic. Uh, I mean, obviously I will, you know, do what I do and 
I'm sure I'll write about 500 articles for Jacobin in the next couple of years saying, hey, uh, Democrats say that Biden couldn't do anything about X, but here are five things he could do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I think it's good at least to arm people, you know, who start out basically agreeing with us so they know what to say to people who say stuff like that. But I'm also not optimistic that we'll make that much headway for one thing, because we already saw this, we've seen this movie before. Uh, this was the uh, this was the Obama administration, yeah. uh, and even somebody like AOC um, said not that long ago uh, in an interview or one of the Twitch things she does, whatever, something like that, right? That uh, uh, and you know, I'm I'm not an AOC hater. I'm I'm very I'm very glad you know that she's there. You know, as, as somebody who you know calls herself a socialist and advocates a lot of important things, uh, but she was even saying things like, well, Obama might not have been as progressive as I like, but, you know, he did what he could, Republicans, yada, yada. So even um, 12 years, uh, so I guess, um, you know, like 12 years after Obama took office, uh, you know, four years after he left office, uh, even the best uh, people in mainstream politics, uh, some of them, are still parroting this line. So I'm, I'm not super optimistic or about our ability yeah. to dispel it. I'm not, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't think you brought me on to like defend AOC and the squad, but, uh, but, but here, but you might get sure, it though. For it. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, I think I, that, that much, you're going to catch her saying that. And look, I, I don't, I'm not here to stand for AOC and everything she's ever said. I'd, I'd love to be one. I'd love to advise her. I think she'd be an open ear and, and whatever, but you know, who's to say who's in her ear and what, what, where she's coming from. She, there's the stuff she ranges, you know, her, her statements, public statements range from like, Oh fuck. Yes. To all the way to like just pure yeah. cringe. But at the same time, um, you know, they're pushing back, you know, I mean, you you've seen AOC go to war, um, uh, on, at least on Twitter, we'll see what's happening behind closed doors. You saw Rashida Tlaib being the first to sort of clap up Abigail Spanberger yeah. when she scoffed the, the the socialism stuff, and their first caucus call immediately following the election. You you saw um, um, uh, Ilhan Omar, Representative Omar, go after Hakeem Jeffries, like <laughs> it's basically by name. Uh, when Jeffries was saying, you know, well, uh, when choosing between you know a high minded ideals and governing, you know, we adults in the room are always going to choose to govern. And, <laughs> and Ilhan, you know, uh, clapped him up in a, in a quote tweet and basically said like, what the fuck makes you think that like seeing to the needs of your constituents is in any way, you know, in opposition to governing like that. If, if that's not what you're doing when you're governing, then you're doing it wrong, you know? And so right. you've got the, and then you've got Bowman, you've got Bush, you've got a lot of other people who are coming in with, with even more stridently socialist um, and in humanistic ideals. And so I think that you're seeing the, the beginnings of, of a real uh, a fighting block in Congress. And, and so, I mean, to just, I mean, I hear you. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a horribly dispiriting time to be a socialist uh, right now. I mean, you've got the, the, the failures of Sanders and Corbin, and, you know, what happened in Bolivia and all across uh, the, I mean, let's, the pink tide is not faring well and they're, they're falling uh, prey to their own contradictions and just because we're, we're pro Evo on this, on your show. And uh, we're, 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 we're pro Moss and, 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 and uh, pumped about the success that they're having in Chile and overturning mm -hmm. the constitute the Pinochet era constitution and all the rest of it. doesn't mean we, we aren't uh, super aware of the limitations of the pink tide. And, and, and it, you know, we should be working with leftists across the country to, or across the world to learn lessons, um, to do it better this time and next time. Um, yeah. 
it's a, it's a very dispiriting time in, in many ways um, to be on the left. But but like we should take heart in the fact that the sentiment, the needs, haven't gone anywhere. I mean, no, you know, I mean, that's what we found I, in Bolivia. Right. I mean, you see, even they didn't even need a second round of voting. They, you know, it was with 53, 54%, something like that. Um, you know, they didn't, go, despite the fact that, you know, the indigenous uh, trade union movement in, in Bolivia was being like brutalized and murdered over the past couple of years, over the past year, at least explicitly, you know, uh, they didn't go anywhere. Their, their minds weren't changed. The, their needs weren't changed. The, the structural contradictions that they're facing in that country hadn't changed. And so when they had an opportunity, they enthusiastically voted, um, you know, the socialists back in. And, and I think, you know, that's what you're going to see across the country, but it's going to require the, the political leadership to change course. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and by the way, I, I, sh- I should just say, right, to anybody who's, who's listening to this, who might be, uh, who might be confused about the uh, the point about the um, about the pink tide uh, mm-hmm. and all of that? Uh, I, of course, if the question is pink tide good or pink tide bad, yeah, good, of course, good, right? No, no, question. good, <laughs> very <laughs> good, easy, very good, very quick, good. quick, good. Uh, yeah. yeah, I choked but, my coffee, shouting, screaming, good. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it's, but I think you can acknowledge that there are, there are mistakes that there are inherent limitations uh, mm. that, that aren't even a matter of anybody making a mistake. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we call you know, Marxist high-minded Marxists call these structural contradictions, right? They're contradictions that are largely resulting of not necessarily decisions that were made, but compounded collective decisions that, that sort of have a way of getting away from you. And of course, then it's also your material base that you're working with. Um, you know, what, what's the political economy of the country that you're dealing with? What, that, what are the capacities that are afforded to you by that political economy? I'm using throwing a lot of jargon in here but this is yeah. the way that we need to start talking right. and that's how this is how you talk about politics like a grown-up yeah well right? and, that, and that's the other <laughs> thing know? i want to clarify for any for anybody who might who might be watching this or listening mm. to this uh who, who might be confused about it because the point you know because I, I could see somebody saying hold on uh, a couple of minutes ago uh you know adam and ben were laughing at you know people who who were upset that that uh, that that Evo, uh, not Evo anymore. You know, he's he's leading the trading federation, but his party, that Moss, uh, you know, isn't going to you know try to implement full communism, you know, in the next year. Uh, that you know, and and that they are in fact concerned with with managing the economy. But then you know, um, here here you're saying that uh, that you know when when people make parallel sounding right critiques of. Uh, of like the squad or, you know, the, the sort of uh, beginnings of a socialist left, that that's ridiculous. And both are true, right? The point is that if you're acting as if, uh, as if it was absurd to try to implement basic reforms that would make people's lives better, right? That's silly. But the other side of that is if you think, that oh okay well you know the reforms are the reforms are nice but why aren't you 1917ing yet? That's also silly. That you know yeah. that we we do you know when Adam talks about a democratic road to socialism, right? Like you know we do have horizons that that go beyond social democracy. You know we 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 want to completely transform uh, foundationally the structure uh, of of the economy, but that's not something. That you that you can do overnight. You sure as hell can't do it in a small, undeveloped country uh, that would uh, that that would die immediately if cut off from the world economy. 
Um, but like, but you, you can't even do it that way in general, that if you're going to, um, if you're going to build a long-term stable majority that wants to be on this road, uh, then you, you need, um, to, you need to do two things, right? You need to, to be doing things that are actually meeting people's needs that are making their lives better that, you know, that they can see, you know, what, what they're getting out of it. You know, nobody's ever going to support, like, look, if you want to talk about 1917, uh, you know, the, the Bolsheviks in 1917 didn't say you should support us uh, because then, you know, then we're going to, um, you know, we're, you, sh- you should support us because uh, that will ultimately lead to a highest, higher stage communism where we'll abolish the, uh, the value form. What they said yeah. was land peace bread, right? You yeah. know, that we're going to pull the country out of World War I, uh, you know, we're going to distribute land to landless peasants and everybody's going to have, have, have bread. That's the kind of sales pitch that can actually work. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think that you, you can and should think all three things, right? That, that you can't, uh, that it's, it's ridiculous to, to criticize people for not sort of going to 10 immediately as if it were just a matter of will as if the reason right. why we weren't living under socialism right now is because they're not trying uh, hard enough. Yeah. It's, it's because it's because like you just have, like, they only felt it a little bit more in their hearts, Ben, uh, yeah, 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 there yeah. By now, you know? exactly. But also that we can get there. And meanwhile, uh, that we can certainly have vastly more aggressive, uh, reform agenda than, uh, you know, than anything that these, these feckless, awful liberals would ever get behind. Oh, you know, absolutely. all three of, all three of those things are true. And, and I, I guess, I guess in maybe in our last, you know, few minutes together, like, like what I, I, I want to just kind of broaden out like the view a little bit, because, because something that I've certainly personally been struggling with a lot, you know, in the last few months. And, um, and I also know that like some of this is not like coming from sober political analysis. Some of this is, um, you know, impressionistic. Some of this is that, uh, you know, that I'm probably, uh, a little bit depressed because everybody is because uh, we've been, we've been living with, with COVID since March. Uh, and, and as you alluded to, um, as you alluded to at the top of the episode, you know, a, a very good friend of mine died very tragically, you know, friend mm-hmm. of ours, you know, uh, Michael Brooks during that time. And so I'm sure the combination of those things, I'm probably looking at everything with, um, I don't know, whatever the opposite of rose tinted glasses is, you know, that, uh, yeah. well, we're going to look back on this in a few years and be like, Holy shit, that was a crappy year. Wasn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just going to be like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Worth, worth, worth uh, projecting ourselves in the future to think back on. Um, no, yeah. no question. But also I guess, you know, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this, right. Cause it's like, okay, like what am I trying to do, you know, with, um, you know, with this show, besides just entertain people and show them my pretty face every week. Uh, that And, you know, I, I think a couple of things, right? One is to try to get people and, and you know, trust me, I know I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here. That's fine, right? You know, that they have a, but I'm at least trying to get the choir to be a little bit clearer and a little bit more confident about the arguments for their positions. Uh, and the other thing, which is intimately related to the first thing, uh, is that I'm I'm trying to uh, give the choir the sense of perspective that they'll need, right? To 
at the risk of stretching this metaphor to hopelessness, uh, keep singing. Uh, you know. oh, you just like to, to, to steal a meta or whatever, a cliche metaphor, whatever from an old black pastor somewhere. I'm sure you, you do preach to the choir. So they'll sing on tune, right? Yeah. yeah. You do it, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and, and so, and I think some of that sense of, of perspective, um, you know, the sort of, half jokey, although I do seriously endorse all three things, a uh, thing that, that I often tell people here is to, um, you know, um, read Marx, drink whiskey, uh, and develop an appreciation for country music. All of those things will serve you better, right? You know, and through <laughs> yeah, all yeah. this than, right. uh, than, than living or dying, you know, with mm-hmm. the 24 uh, hour news cycle. Uh, but I, I guess the thing that I really struggle with, the thing that I really want to pick your brain on in the last few minutes is just like, I know it's a big question. I know it's hard to answer concretely, but we don't want to just fall into, um, into counterproductive nihilism, right? You know, obviously we know we've all like, I mean, it's, it's not like in 2019, we didn't know that the, um, there was a very long steep road and that the, the chances of failure were much better than the chances of success. You know, it's gotten a little steeper, right? But I'm not sure the calculation is fundamentally different. So we don't want to fall into counterproductive nihilism, but at the same time, we don't want to be like Donald Trump saying that I just had a tremendous victory, right? Like, like, yeah. like, like just pretending like everything is fine mm-hmm. doesn't do any good to anybody. Maybe it does a little bit of good for them in the short term, but you're also going to burn out very quickly when you keep trying to project that on a world that's just obviously not matching it. Man, I'm gonna give the, I'm gonna give the Pollyanna report today. You ready? I'm not, I'm not okay, usually in this it. position. Go for it. I don't know if I agree with that last bit because I, I guess I, I I just I mean I understand. I mean there's a lot to be there's a lot to be bummed about, but I look at the raw sentiment on the ground. Okay. And 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 I I think nothing's changed. The the soil that that Bernie you know uh, uh, flourished on. I'm, I like uh, soil metaphors. You think I was like a farmer in a past life? The soil that that uh, you know that nourished and, and, and sprouted the the Bernie wave sprouted yeah. from. Right. The burn. Well, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors now. Um, you see the Bernie. Imagine the Bernie wave is a corn stalk. Uh, <laughs> anyway, no. uh, it's 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 still there, right? People still need healthcare. They want fucking, I mean, with the Fox poll and the, ex, the Fox exit poll uh, a couple Tuesdays ago, you know, showed that uh, up to 70% of the country is in favor of, of state managed healthcare. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Medicare for all? Does it mean a public option? Like who's to say, but this is a Fox poll, a Fox right. news exit poll, right? So this is, this is a uh, bipartisan not but fuck by nonpartisan, right? Because but partisan is the partisan part that 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 fucks people's minds when when it comes to thinking clearly about what they really want, really what they really need. Um, you know, from everything right now to to managing the economy in the face of COVID, um, to to really so deep seated, deep rooted social issues are really sort of on, on the on the up and up for for the left as well. You know, we talk about the culture war, but you know, some of this stuff really matters. You know, in terms of yeah, of course how how. You know, like quote, cosmopolitan and progressive, do you sort of imagine yourself to be how much of a part of a, of a larger sort of like world order, world system of, 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 of hum- just a general, you know, d- d- metrics of humanism or whatever are on the rise and is, is cringy and is, um, you know, as um, sort of like uh, minimalistic in terms of like a low bar, it's a low barrier of entry, right? But at the same time, like it's an important one. Right. It's one that right. if it wasn't there, I mean, we, 
we can lampoon these like liberal movies that are pushing, you know, trans rights and gay rights and gay identity and all the rest of it and say, well, oh, it's, yeah, it's this kind of liberal, um, you know, signaling or whatever. Like, it's not going to get anybody fed. are actually important. Like this, like, these are, these are like fundamental. It's, it beats you know. the hell out of, 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 of that not being the sort of culturally hegemonic right. uh, machine that's on the rise. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, good thing for progressive politics. It's bad news for, for the, uh, for the far right, um, in that respect. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, uh, um, people want to rebrand the Republican party as, as a, as a multi-ethnic, uh, party for workers somehow, right? You've seen a lot of people sort of put that out over the past couple of weeks because they see the writing is on the wall, right? Culturally, um, they're, they're losing. Um, but that's just to say that we got to get our shit straight. And I think like we, we have to, as a left, I mean, this audience, and I'm sorry, I give a lot of tough love. I hope I don't scare any of your audience away. Um, you know, patrons are never wrong. I just want to, this, that goes for your show as well as my show. But uh, so if, if you disagree with me and you're a patron of Ben's, then I'm wrong and you're right. Uh, but uh, that, that's an old uh, maxim. But at the same time, um, we got to get real about ourselves. You know, I, I put up a little tweet thread a, a couple of days ago talking about how, how laughable it was. You know, it is that, that the people who fancy themselves as, as like, like storming, you know, uh, the, the German position or whatever at the battle of the bulge or what have you, you know, uh, back if, if they were only alive back in 43 or whenever it was, I don't know. Don't, don't my world war two history sucks. Uh, you know, these people can't even fucking stay home. And they can't even fucking wear a mask to save American lives. And they fancy themselves like, like leaping over the trenches in World War I at the Battle of the Somme or whatever, right? Like these assholes can't stay out of fucking uh, TGI Fridays, you know, long enough to flatten the curve to save American lives and to get the American economy back up and running, right? And so why are we the left, right? The, the far left, the socialist left. Not the progressive, you know, wishy-washy. Why are we ceding the territory of like, say, something as like fraught as like, say, patriotism, right? Why are we ceding these dominant narratives that we actually, that that Americans, normies, right? People for whom politics is is not a hobby. Yeah. Uh, Normies hold these things dear. And we, the democratic socialist left, embody these ideals better than almost anyone. Why are we not wearing that on our sleeves, trumpeting, trumpeting it from the rooftops? We have got to fall out of love with this marginality that we've cloaked ourselves in for, for decades and decades and decades. And we have to be out loud, proud, shouting our insanely popular policies from, from, the, from the rafters. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that are stopping us from doing that and, and assessing that with any Real clarity would require probably another episode, and I don't want to go too too deeply into that right now. But we have to be comfortable and, and confident with making priorities. Yeah, we have to be comfortable and confident about um, working in coalition with people uh, who may or may not line up perfectly with our full buffet line of of values and and, and long term aims. And we and then we have to get very clear about uh, what our roadmap is and and what it means to be a socialist. What our organizations DSA? What is DSA for? What, what is its goal? What is its purpose? Um, having these debates out in the open like we used to instead of behind uh, uh, caucus barricades for, for people who are interested in DSA inside baseball. Yeah, yeah, um, right. You name I mean, it. I, I mean, I always thought uh, that the purpose of uh, 
you know, the primary purpose of, of DSA was to, um, you know, was, was educational and, uh, and, you know, to, you know, to raise certain kind of socialist consciousness, but also to elect uh, social democratic politicians, because I think that's the, you know, that's, that's the most, um, like, I think that out of things that an organization like DSA can do, I mean, I, th- I think short term, you know, I, I think that's the thing to focus on. Um, but uh, it's, it's certainly become clear in the last in the last year or two that uh, that not everybody involved in it uh, sees things that way. And that that is an important mm-hmm. debate to have. Uh, I also, you know, quite like, you know, definitely like what you say um, about uh, about patriotism, uh, because I, I think that this is something that um, that it, it's like the voting thing. Right. You know, like like that the people. Um, get so invested in forming their identity around a like contrarian mm. sort of spirit when it comes to either stuff like this this kind of civic act of voting uh, or or in terms of like like certain symbols that you know that they might associate you know with, with, with bad things and what they really most want to do with these things is to uh, to differentiate themselves to say hey right, i exactly. i'm not like right mm-hmm. everything else that's that's going on around me that I, for all sorts of very good reasons i object to um, but you know differentiating yourself one leads to i mean like really if that's your whole thing that leads to subculturalism which is just the death of of politics uh, right. and and two like differentiating yourself doesn't actually do anything to stop any of the things that you would differentiate yourself. Nothing. From. You're you doing, know? we're doing what our friend, uh, you know, Matt Chrisman calls building ships and bottles. And then you're, and then you're astonished to, to find in, in with the, the outbreak of a global pandemic uh, and the disappearance of our boy Bernie from the scene, that that ship is not seaworthy, that it's a fucking yeah, ship right. in a bottle. Right. Exactly. Um, right. Like, like, like if you, if you actually have aspirations to do more, than to just feel good about yourself because you're differentiated, uh, then you should you should think about how you can make that sales pitch to everybody else uh, who doesn't care about differentiating themselves, right? You know, who, we, we need to think about it. I mean, the left. No, I, I like that. I like the way you're sort of breaking that down and articulating that in a much more sort of like a, a sloganistic, sloganeering sort of. We could put this on a bumper sticker, which is important. Uh, I'm fucking verbose and I use too much jargon. We need more bumper stickers on the left. So I love that. But you know, if we we need to for the next two to four years, the left needs to think very seriously about how, how we're, how we're the same right. as everybody yeah, else right, right. rather exactly. than how we're right. different. Like, like, like what are the things that you actually have in common mm. uh, with your friends and neighbors and coworkers? We're all trapped uh, on this fucking rock together and it's heating at record speed, you know, and the, and the glaciers are melting, uh, you know? And so if we don't start thinking about what we have in common and how our fates are intertwined and, and what we therefore have the same, uh, with, with our fellow, our fellow humans, uh, then, you know, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and, and of course, you know, there are people whose economic interests mean that, you know, that they, they are, uh, you know, that they'll, they'll never be won over, but, uh, but most people who, uh, who make political decisions that we like are not like that, right? Most people, yeah. uh, who make political decisions we don't like, whether that means supporting centrist Democrats, uh, against Bernicrats or whether that means voting for Trump or, or uh, or whatever, right? Um, yeah. Like, are people who 
who do need the things that ever you know everybody yeah. else needs. It's easy, uh, right? They, it they should be an easy sell. Money. They, they need health care. It should and, yeah, be an easy should, sell, Ben. But listen, be. listen, nutritionists, right, have to convince you to eat Brussels sprouts, okay? Nutritionists have to convince you that Brussels sprouts don't taste like warmed over piss three days later because they do. They fucking taste like shit. And if you disagree, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Brussels sprouts are horrible. So nutritionists have an uphill battle. Okay. Uh, Public, uh, uh, like uh, reproductive health experts have to convince you that fucking is not as fun as chlamydia. (laughs) <laughs> right? But in the moment, fucking feels way more fun than chlamydia. I don't care who you are, because that, that that's yeah. not gonna hit for another six to seven days. So well, I read on, <laughs> so I read on Wikipedia. I, right. I swear to God, I read it on Wikipedia. Uh yeah, you know, so so public health like reproductive mm-hmm. experts have an uphill battle to convince people not to fuck so much. Right? right? right. But we democratic socialists, like compared to the nutritionists and the public yeah, health we're, we're reproductive specialists. We're, trying specialists. To sell Brussels sprouts. we're, trying no, to sell, we're, we're just literally care. telling people like, huh, sucks that you don't have health care, doesn't it? Well, hey, what if you had it? Sucks <laughs> that your job is terrible and you just got laid off, but hey, what if you didn't? You know, sucks that you you name it. You know, it's like we are not selling. We don't have a difficult sell. You know, no, no, we we don't. We look at it in the right way. Absolutely, and anything that makes it more difficult, the the default at least should be don't do that. Right. So if you know, yeah, and it doesn't mean that it's not important, right? And that's because what we're talking about is making priorities. And when you, yeah. when, when you talk about it, like now we, when you talk about the kind of jokey way about Brussels sprouts and fucking, it's yeah. funny and it's everyone can sort of agree yeah. with it. When you, when you say making priorities, you know, it's people get their back up and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that, you know, this dot, 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 whatever issue uh, right. is, isn't important? And it's like, no, 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 no. I didn't say it's not important. Well, in fact, we're saying it is important because if you want to build the actual concrete material political power necessary to ultimately one day address that issue, we're going to have to do these things first yeah, in order and, to build and, and, the forces. And I, and I think that there are, there are going to be situations where there are things that actually all matter to you, the, you know, life and politics being what they are. You actually have to make decisions about, you know, certainly what to prioritize, you know, maybe even in some cases, you know, like what to sacrifice in some situations. And those are very difficult decisions, but the decisions that shouldn't be difficult are decisions about symbolic bullshit. Right. So yeah. uh, if, if, if you if you think that like, you know, like like the imagery of like American flags and stuff, like you associate that with imperialism and you and you for, for very good reasons, you hate imperialism. OK, fine. Right. But then again, you also know that most uh, of the people that you're trying to convince have much better associations with it. And there are all sorts of different narratives you can craft about that, um, you know, uh, Michael, you know, Michael Harrington's thing about how, you know, if the left wants to change this country because we hate it, you know, people won't listen to us and they'll be right not to listen to us uh, to be a socialist is to see the seed, the seed uh, beneath the snow, right? You know, that, right. that, there's, that there's stuff to, uh, to work with uh, in, um, you know, where the population as a whole is at, you know, uh, where the country is at, even the, uh, even the, the uh, in many ways, very oppressive institutions that we would still have to take over and work with if we were to take power. Right. Uh, and so whatever, you know, whatever you decide 
about the harder questions, right? At least on the easier questions, yeah. right? But uh, let's like, be let's be good. Let's be a little, let's uh, do some good pedagogy here uh, for this. You know, you're an instructor. I've been an instructor. Like, let's take this particular case: the American flag and imperialism, right? right. What are two the two distinct ways you could handle this? The first way is that you know you could say, "Ah, oh, fuck America, fuck the flag. It stands for imperialism. Death to America." Right? right. Uh, we're all very familiar with that. The second way is you can say you can say, uh, you know what? This country is full of people who are who are, who are good, who care about one another. There are really incredible legacies, not only like politically in, in the United States with the, the spread and the birth of a certain type of socialism that comes from the, from rural America and, and, and metropolitan areas in urban America. Uh, so we have our own unique flavor of socialism that was born and bred here, but also just like, they're just good humans and just good people, you know? And, 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 and it's, it's actually, you know, the, the warmongers actually come from, uh, you know, uh, from, from the side of, 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 you know, the political and economic sphere that's always been opposed to those good people. Right. And so that's not us. Like we didn't bomb, you know, uh, Cambodia. We didn't choose, you know, to go into Iraq. It was, it was them, right. It's the rule. It's the ruling class and their paid prize fighters. And they have always historically been against us. And so they don't represent us, you know? And so what we fight for a positive picture, um, you know, in the midst of a lot of atrocity, you know, and, 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 and take responsibility when it's necessary, but also, yeah, but also hold up a, a higher set of ideals that are, that are attractive and palatable to the masses. Because again, democratic road to socialism, I'm sorry. The only way we're going to do this is if the vast majority of, of, of society agrees with us and agrees with yeah. us. So we have to restructure society in such a way that uh, it's, it's that this path is beneficial to to, to the many. Yeah. Well, that is very well said. Uh, and, uh, uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I did not expect this result when we, uh, the conversation started, but fuck if I don't actually feel better. I'm <laughs> <laughs> hey, glad I could help. All right. Uh, thanks Adam. So, uh, Adam Proctor is the host of, uh, the dead pundit society, uh, which was on a hiatus, but it is now back. Uh, they, you know, they are pumping out, uh, that good content again. Uh, um, I'm a patron, uh, and if you uh, if you join the Patreon, uh, you you get regular like big beefy like uh, B sides uh, of content uh, that uh, that you don't get on the uh, on the regular podcast feed. Um, so um, so you should you know you should check it out. Uh, it's good stuff. Always really good to talk to you, Adam. Thanks for the pitch and uh, pleasure to ch- to chat with you. Let's uh, let's do it again real soon. Absolutely. All right, I'm now joined uh, by uh, Daniel Bessner, um, historian, international relations guru. uh, Jack had been man about town. Uh, so, uh, I was talking, uh, to, uh, to Adam at the, uh, at the end there a little bit, uh, about, uh, about us imperialism. Uh, and, uh, that ended up being a much better, uh, transition, uh, than, than I was thinking that we'd have, uh, to, uh, talk about a, uh, an article, uh, that, uh, that you wrote for, uh, for Jacobin, about uh, these uh, these war games that uh, that happened in uh, in two thousand and two. So be- before we get into the meat of it, uh, like 
like set us up a little bit, right? What, what was the point supposed to be? Sure. Well, before we even get into that, uh, I just want to point out the fact that there's a Band-Aid on my head, right? People will be watching this, right, Ben, on video? Yeah. yeah. So in, in, the, in the latest adventures of Vera the dog, who <laughs> people I remember from my last appearance caused me to go to the vet, Vera got into, she's a genius, she figured out how to basically create a step stool to get on a table where there was a bunch of Jolly Rancher candy. So she, Courtney, my partner, and I went out, and uh, she had basically a bag, not that much, but a ton of Jolly Rancher candy and was fucking frantic for like 45 minutes to an hour and a half, some long amount of time. And in her running around the house smashed into my head and now I have a Band-Aid. So that is what's going Suddenly <laughs> smashed. She was just super pumped up uh, running. But so I just wanted to apologize for that. But yeah, I, was, uh, I was wondering about that because I remember you having a uh, Band-Aid on your head. Uh, also uh, caused by <laughs> Okay. I was like, wow, this is a really slow healing cut. All right. Yeah. It's a, it's a different cut actually on the opposite side. She was a Tijuana street dog. And so she's still getting off the mean streets and, and accommodating herself to civilized life. But just wanted to explain that. But let me get into the war game. So um, a couple of things. One, um, I think like the military is just generally an important site of leftist sort of thinking and analysis. Um, I think that like very clearly in most countries throughout most periods of modern history, the military has been a site of reaction, but not always. Um, most famously, probably uh, the Kiel Rebellion in northern uh, Germany that actually um, anticipated the end of uh, World War One and helped inspire a series of of a sort of socialist republics throughout throughout Germany that lasted for a little bit. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the Bolshevik, the Red Army, and things along those lines. Now, I'm not saying like the Red Army itself is a progressive force. There's a lot, long history there, but just saying that like militant action, military action is crucial to any left project. Um, then even think if you're thinking about today with Trump, right? Like, uh, I think we're, we're lucky that the American military is like basically this sort of faceless, um, bureaucracy without charismatic generals, but you know, it wouldn't have been impossible to think that there's some sort of charismatic reactionary general who could have actually put some weight behind Trump, behind Trump's call for a coup. And I think uh, the absence of that is one of the reasons, one of the many, many reasons that there's not going to be uh, that Biden will become president. But it's just you know an important side of action. So I just think that like as a space, the military is an important thing for the left to think about. Do you want me to continue, Ben, or do you want to say anything? I was talking no, for no, a while. No, 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 that's that's good. So. Um yeah, I guess I, I guess I do want to just plug here that uh, at some undetermined point in the next week, uh, uh, Daniel is going to come on the uh, the YouTube stream uh, if you're listening to this uh, as a as podcast uh, to um, to talk uh, about the the issue that he was just alluding to with with Trump uh, and uh, and and why you know I, I think both of us are. Uh, are not really on the uh, the Trump is on the verge of staging a military coup and imposing fascism train, uh, and maybe also more broadly though, uh, you know what we can learn from from thinking about those issues and, and about some of the debate that's happened about them in the last few years. But but yeah, so so this is an important um, you know like this is a this is an important subject for for leftists to pay attention to maybe more more attention than we typically do because. I think oftentimes on the left, we only notice that the military exists uh, when it starts bombing a new place um, where, you know, but, uh, but there are interesting things that are going on uh, in, uh, in other contexts, which, which maybe, which maybe brings us to the subject of the piece. 
Right, right. And it's, it's also something to think about just in case like a future Bernie or let's say President AOC or someone actually does win the presidency. One of the major constituencies in American politics is the military. You know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have an enormous influence on American foreign policy and, and also American domestic policy through things like the VA and, you know, military contracts and things along those lines. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. But what I um, explored in the piece is this um, event that happened in 2002, really between 2000 2002 called the Millennium Challenge, which was the um, a congressionally mandated war game. Um, so just to give a bit of the of the history of it, um, the United States wins the Cold War, right? So this is a big event. But I think even more importantly for understanding the direction of military affairs is that soon um, after the Cold War ends, let's say 1989, 1990, in the turn of 1990 into 1991, the United States, um, what I was going to say, occupies, that's not the right word, fights the first Gulf War, Gulf right. War One, whatever you want to call it. Iraq War. Um, and this this is actually really important because um, the United States absolutely destroys Saddam's military in a series of about four days. There's about a month of bombardment, if I recall correctly, 30-ish days, um, followed by basically a four-day routing of Saddam's army that had invaded Kuwait. Saddam's military, not just his army. Um, and so uh, this was a, a big deal uh, because Saddam actually had a pretty substantial military. I think at the time, I think it was the fourth, one of the fourth, like the fourth most powerful in the world measured by some metrics. That might be wrong. I apologize. I have the data somewhere, but it was a power, it was a real, it was a legit military. It wasn't like a fake force. Uh, and the U.S. fucking destroyed it. Um, and this basically led to um, people arguing that there was something called the Revolution in Military Affairs, the RMA, um, and that this Revolution in Military Affairs was basically defined by the use of advanced technologies, both advanced weapons systems, but also things like GPS, um, surveillance technologies, and radar, um, and that what advocates of the RMA, the Revolution in Military Affairs, were arguing was that um, this provided um, the material basis for the long-standing American dream, which was to make war clean. Um, and as I talk about in the piece, going back to the 20s and the 30s and the advent of, of planes, you know, um, metal planes with powerful engines, um, there was the idea that one would be able to basically end ground wars of the type seen in World War One. these sort of trench wars, trench warfare, um, by having planes fly over the trenches bombing, let's say, uh, an enemy's electrical communication system, their networks of, uh, of transportation, their logistics networks, whatever, and um, ending wars quickly. Uh, this was the dream of, of basically people who were in the Army Air Forces, which, as the name implies, was part of the um, Army, and people who were advocating for Air Force independence, which eventually happens in 1947, were saying that the Air Force had its own strategic logic. That is, it goes above ground troops to destroy an enemy's industrial base, network communication base, as opposed to just aiding the ground troops as they as they go forward. Um, of course, in World War II, this doesn't quite work out the same way. Um, the uh, Air Force, the American Air Force, um, some part of the army, uh, is not able with the Royal Air Force to basically defeat Hitler with just, um, you know, planes. You have D-Day, you know, you have ground invasion. But in the Japanese theater, things look a little bit differently. Uh, things look a little bit different because you do have the so-called island hopping campaigns, but also the war ends with an atomic bomb, right? And this Air Force advocates argued was the demonstrating that um, the Air Force was able to end wars in an instant. And so there's this sick 
letter sent from Loris Norstad, a very high ranking um, Air Force official that says like, see, strategic bombing is real. We destroyed, we ended the Japanese um, imperial uh, domination with two bombs. You know, it might've killed uh, tens of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands over time, but you know, we ended the war quickly. And so this becomes like still a rationale in American political culture, this, this uh, military culture, the search for cleaning war. And this is what the revolution in military affairs seemed to augur, that you'd be able to have quick, cheap, efficient wars. Um, so Ben, do you want me to clarify anything and then I could go a little bit more into what happens after that or... Yeah, no, I mean, so I, I think probably that's pretty clear about what the, um, you know, like, like what the belief was, right, about what the Gulf War had shown, right? So, so, then, um, so then what happens with these, with these war games and how, how does that relate to that? Sure. So there's a bunch of people in the military who are arguing in favor of this revolution in military affairs, this RMA. But there's, of course, other people within the military who are saying, this is bullshit. Like, I've been hearing these things since oftentimes they were Vietnam veterans. And they were like, I've been hearing these things since Vietnam, that technology and qualification and models are going to end wars quickly and cheaply. Um, and in fact, in Vietnam, sometimes the models would show that the Americans were winning when in fact they very much were not. So there's basically, after the Gulf War, um, a divide between those who support the RMA and those who basically argue that it's bullshit. Now, one of the main people who argued that it was bullshit but was this guy named uh, Lieutenant, who was a Marine Corps Lieutenant General named Paul K. Van Riper. His nickname was Rip, Rip Van Riper, both a play on Rip Van Winkle and also a play on his last name being Riper. Um, and he was like, no, the RMA is bullshit. So Van Riper was a little bit like uh, the General Jack D. Ripper. Yeah, very much like Jennifer from uh, Doctor Strangelove, um, so which is which is a funny little illusion. But so Van Riper retires from the Marines in 1997. But it, you know, it's actually not that bad a time in American history to be a retired general, because throughout the 1990s, um, particularly in the second Clinton administration, there's this push to transform the military. It's called defense transformation, and what is meant by that is that basically um, you're people within the military are trying to incorporate the technologies and the lessons of the revolution in military affairs into doctrine, into the procurement weapons systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so one of the ways that, you know, the military decided to, to demonstrate first that transformation was something good and second to determine what to purchase was through war games. So there's this huge surge of, of war games in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And, and the people who are hired to play in war games are oftentimes retired generals because it, an actual general is busy. He's being moving around. He has other duties, blah, blah, blah. So um, what happens is the defense contractors who run these games in, in tandem with the um, Department of Defense, um, hire retired generals like Ben Riper. And in fact, in, in uh, I think it's 2000, might be 99, I forget, but 99 or 2000, it's in the article, um, the Congress, the American Congress actually passes a law that says in order to prove if um, transformation works, it's, if it's a thing that we should do, basically, um, there needs to be this like huge war game term the Millennium Challenge. That's not in the congressional authorization, but it eventually becomes known as the Millennium Challenge. And beginning in 2000 and in 2002 is when the Millennium Challenge takes place. Um, and it's a very complex thing that happens between 2000 and 2002, but basically there's a series of different events. They're called spirals that um, simulate a political standoff that eventually um, emerges in a war game 
the deployment of American troops to a country that's meant to simulate the Gulf War, uh, uh, sorry, a country meant to simulate either Iran or Iraq, probably a combination of the two. Um, That is called, which is what people mean by the Millennium Challenge 2002. So just to, uh, and then I'll stop, just to be clear, process between 2000 2002 is called the millennium challenge right. and the game is called the millennium challenge 2002 and so there's a, it's a little complex and what this article does is that it explicates um this game and the controversy around it yeah i, sh- I should say by the way i never saw said the name of the article it's the uh, the general who brought down uh, the american empire um so uh so all right so there's there's this country that's that's supposed to be iran iraq a little bit of each uh and um that's that's uh, facing you know the the war game is a simulation of uh, you know is acting out you know that uh, that country uh, facing off against the United States and if you believe in this revolution in military affairs uh, then uh, then we presumably uh, should be able to um, I keep on trying to come up with a clever way to combine Iran and Iraq but there's no way to do that because they're the same you know <laughs> the same first three letters and I, I don't know what to do with that but. Uh, you know, Iraqan, right? You know, they had a, uh, that, uh, that we should be, uh, that presumably if you believe in the RMA, uh, then we should be able to just, uh, to just flatten Iraqam and, and succeed and, and everything should be good. Yeah, very quickly. So there's, so basically these spirals are like kind of pre-war games, war games, and it, what eventually leads to this scenario, which is that there's an earthquake in Iraqan, um, the middle, unnamed Middle Eastern country, and that this earthquake destabilizes the society, which leads a general to separate from the basically the religious national leadership and begin to assert control over the territory. This general, um, who is in the Millennium Challenge 2002, is Van Riper. Van Riper is hired to play this general who has separated from basically the Ayatollah, let's just say the Ayatollah, um, and, you know, is like, seizing territory throughout um, the Gulf, in particular the Persian Gulf. And so the explicit scenario is that Van Riper, the general, the Iranian, Iraqan general played by Van Riper has seized a series of islands in the Gulf and has begun to charge shipping um, companies, essentially tolls to ensure safe passage through the Gulf. And this is of course a big deal because a ton of war materials, most importantly, oil is transported through the Gulf every day. And so in response to this, um, the the U.S. government, the so-called blue team, basically dispatches an aircraft carrier battle group in order to challenge Van Riper. And this is where the game begins. The game begins at this moment. Van Riper has started um, charging tolls and the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy in particular, has been deployed to the Persian Gulf. Uh, So should I say what happens? Yeah, 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 please so um, basically, the Navy arrives, uh, and the head of the Navy is a guy named Lieutenant General, I believe, he's a Lieutenant General, apologies if I'm wrong, B.B. Bell, B-E-L-L, um, issues Van Riper an ultimatum. He says, you have 24 hours to um, surrender, uh, otherwise we're going to take you and your forces out. Um, so what Van Riper does, remember, Van Riper is trying to disprove the revolution in military affairs, is that he begins to use low-tech technology. So when the U.S. Navy went into the um, Persian Gulf, they destroyed, in the simulation, they destroyed basically um, the, the the sort of secret 
ways that Van Riper was communicating with his forces. I believe there was supposed to be underground. A lot of this is vague, but I believe there were supposed to be underground, basically, networks. Um, so the Navy destroys these underground communications relays, um, and then they think that Van Riper is going to have to communicate with cell phones, which are easily monitored by the then current technology of the Navy in, in early 2000s. But what Van Riper does, he's like, no, I know these, these guys are going to monitor me, so I'm going to communicate in um, with, with basically low-tech ways. So um, what Van Riper does is that he's a, a given this ultimatum, and he's like, I know the U.S. has adopted a doctrine of preemption, right? George W. Bush had says this, the U.S. is going to adopt a doctrine to prevent wars, to preempt wars, and Van Riper, Van Riper says, if they're going to prevent, uh, preempt me, I'm going to preempt them. And so he uses motorcycle car- uh, couriers, right? You know, he doesn't have to communicate on cell phones. He sends motorcycle couriers. Um, when he's trying to tell his planes to take off, he uses light signals, which were used during World War II. And most famously, to initiate his preemptive attack, um, Van Riper used um, coded messages in the call to prayer that come from the minarets of this, you know, fake Middle Eastern Muslim country. So Van Riper does this. He secretly initiates an attack. He totally takes the U.S. Navy by surprise. And I believe he winds up in the end sinking 16 of the naval vessels that had been, uh, of the American naval vessels in the simulation that had been dispatched to the Persian Gulf, including one aircraft carrier. And for, for comparison, I believe during um, the Pearl Harbor attack, the most disastrous naval uh, event in American history, I believe in the end, it, it sort of like depends how you count sunken ships, but I believe four ships were sunk. Um, so imagine like quadruple that amount. Um, and if this attack were real, 20,000 U.S. soldiers would die. So basically this low-tech Van Riper um, attack, which is done by missiles, which is done by planes, which is also done by kamikaze assaults from small vessels, succeeds in the simulation of sinking the 16 U.S. naval ships, including an aircraft carrier. Um, so this is would basically be like by far the largest naval disaster in American history. Uh, and so it totally destroyed what the Navy intended to happen, which is what we think. We haven't gotten the documents, but like clearly they didn't want to lose. Right. They wanted to prove that the RMA was real and that they would be able to take out um, unnamed Middle Eastern country, Iraq or Iran, um, in 2002. Uh, after, um, and even though they were sp- supposed to be like 2007 capabilities, but that's, you could read about that in the thing, but basically that they would be able to take out a Middle Eastern country. And so after Van Riper succeeds, and sinking the ships, there's basically a day and a half of stunned silence at the simulation center in Virginia, and the blue team, the American team, decides to refloat the ships, which is actually what would happen in a war game. The problem, though, is that Van Riper, and you could read about more details in the article, had been promised that this game wouldn't be fucked with, that it wouldn't be fixed. Because he had a previous experience where he basically thought a war game was fixed, and he was like, this is fucked up. And they're like, don't worry, the Millennium Challenge 2002 won't be fixed. Uh, but anyway, they refloat the ships, and then I won't get into the details because that's the big event, but throughout the next four, five, six days as Van Riper continues to play the game, the blue team essentially cooks the books in favor of its winning. Um, and Van Riper eventually resigns, and he leaks this information. Um, eventually, the details are in the article, and this becomes this whole hullabaloo over whether the U.S. Navy fixed this war game, which I should call, uh, recall cost, um, all told, in the 2000, 2001, 2002, cost about a quarter of a billion dollars. $250 million involved 13,500 troops, involved a bunch of um, about, I think it's nine live fire scenarios, even though... So most of the game is simulated in computer systems and there's like a series of 
Like you have a computer model that models attacking civil infrastructure. You have a computer model that models artillery fire. So all of these models were put together into one gigantic simulation. So most of the game takes place in a simulation, but there will also be like a live exercise. Like a Marine will attack a base, and if they capture the base, it will count as like 15 captured bases in the game. I get into the details in the article. That's not important, but whatever. It was a very important, very expensive, very large game that Van Riper publicly accused of being fixed. And this, you know, has this whole drama around it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I guess just to, uh, just, just to pull, uh, pull out a little bit here, right? So this is this, this, is this massive embarrassment. Uh, you know, they, they put all this money into it. This is, this is supposed to be the proof of concept uh, for, uh, for the, uh, the RMA. Uh, and, um, and, and instead, it, well, it, it started out being a disaster, and, and, and then they kind of decided to, you know, I mean, I guess the equivalent in a real war would be like a, an act of God uh, to, uh, to, to intervene to reverse the losses. Uh, so, so what, if anything, uh, did anybody in the military establishment actually learn from this? Um, so this is, this is like, it gets into the, the details. So the question is, was the Millennium Challenge a war game or an experiment? If it's a war game, it should be free play, and they shouldn't be able to do things like refloat ships, right? If it's an experiment, then they could be able to, to refloat ships because of um, basically because uh, it allows the experiment to continue. And I think um, that they were never clear on what this game was supposed to be. Um, I think they wanted it to be a game that proved them right, um, but that isn't what it turned out to be. So there's the truth is, like, we don't really know because we don't have access to the discussions and the documents. They might not even exist. But that's my sense, is that they wanted it to be, like, kind of free play, enough free play to prove that this is what, um, you know, the U.S. military should do. But um, anyway, uh, so the RMA basically goes relatively unchallenged for several years until um, until the, uh, um, actually, James Mad Dog Mattis, you might remember as Trump's Secretary of Defense, becomes, like, head of the Marine Corps Experimental Unit, and he agrees with Van Riker and is like, the RMA is bullshit, and he essentially purges it from the, uh, the, the, the doctrine of what the Joint Forces Command, which also no longer exists. But I think it's important because um, this is a story that really reflects this longstanding dream in American um, life and really in the American political imagination for clean war, um, for, for war that could be made clean. And I think this has become this sort of liberal um, idea. I think you see it under Obama, the late Obama administration with the turn towards drone warfare, and I bet you're going to see it in the coming Biden administration. This idea that with enough know-how, enough American ingenuity, enough science and technology, you're going to be able to make war clean. Um, and I think Van Riper, who you know probably doesn't politically align with socialists, is nonetheless right. And that war is really politically, I'm sorry, war is really chaotic. It is something that is so fundamentally unmanageable that, as Karl von Clausewitz, the Prussian uh, general, said in the 1810s and 1820s, you know, it's in, in the wake of the, the Napoleonic Wars, is that you really can't clear the fog of war. That the dream of clean war is basically bullshit. Uh, and that, you know, this liberal fantasy that you're going to be able to make war humane is, is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, uh, and, and which is a particularly disturbing thing to, to think about because uh, as, you know, as Biden comes in and, you know, look, uh, at the best of times, empire is bipartisan, uh, and as, 
I've heard you point out before, uh, you know, there are some, you know, disturbing signs uh, that the um, that uh, the Biden administration might be more like uh, the first term Obama administration, the second term Obama administration in terms of its willingness to, uh, um, you know, to do things uh, like, well, for example, like like the, uh, you know, the regime change in Libya uh, that uh, that happened uh, under Obama. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, the other you know side of that empire is bipartisan coin is that there is a lot of ridiculous, bizarre mythology, uh, which is even believed on parts of the left, that the Trump administration was somehow like isolationist or quasi dovish, uh, and 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 beyond just the most obvious stuff, like you know they doubled the rate of drone strikes in Yemen, uh, they uh, they they tore up the Iran deal. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, they, they seem to be worried uh, about the possibility uh, that, uh, that Biden uh, might reverse on that and try to get the Iran deal back as much as that might actually be difficult at this point because we've already shown <laughs> that we can't be trusted, you know, when we negotiate these things. Uh, that, you know, if there's, you know, the next president comes in, you know, uh, you know can, can just scrap it like it's nothing. But, um, you know, that they, they're worried about this. And, and in fact, I've seen reports that they... Uh, that one of the, the parting gifts of the uh, the Trump administration has been uh, imposing a whole shitload of new sanctions on Iran to to try to make it more difficult uh, to to restore any sort of diplomatic relations uh, between the U.S. and Iran, and and it really seems like the fact that um, you know the fact that there weren't any uh, like people say oh Trump didn't start any new wars like yeah okay uh, he appointed a bunch of of horrific you know like neocons, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to important, uh, to important positions. Uh, and they did their best to stir the pot and nothing that came out of the pot actually developed into a new war. But you know, that like, that's not the sort of thing you should give out Nobel peace prizes for. Um, yeah. I mean, the important yeah. thing in my view is like also to, to even begin transforming the structure and just Trump did absolutely none of that. I mean, Trump was like a dangerous and reckless foreign policy president who did absolutely nothing to transform the structure of U.S. foreign policy in a meaningful way. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what? Let's not celebrate this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, really, this is this is probably the the uh, the area uh, where there's the least to celebrate in any possible outcome uh, of uh, of an American you know election. That's you know, I mean, there would have been you know if we'd gotten Bernie, uh, but. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, given that we, I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to think how, how to put this, right? So given that what should be learned from this, uh, you know, from, from this, this debacle, I mean, beyond just the fact that it's like, uh, you know, it's a good story, it's, it's, it's like sort of, you, you, you know, mouth is kind of a jar the whole time you read this, you know, uh, that, uh, but like that the, the thing that should be learned from this is about, uh, is about the impossibility of. Right. So this is what I, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know what you think, but I still think like on the left, there's this idea that we could be like the good empire. I don't think they would ever be framed in that terms, but just something that struck out to me like a few months ago, I think I posted a question on Twitter about like, basically humanitarian intervention, like should we do it along those lines? And like a lot of people and most people who follow me are, are left, were like, yes. <laughs> and I think it's important to emphasize, like I think that the lesson is like war cannot be made clean. It cannot be made humane. It cannot be made cheap. 
in terms of either lives or money. And, and so like, it's just not possible to, um, to do that, basically. It's, it's a fundamentally horrible, chaotic, inhumane thing. And, um, yeah, well, because it's tricky, right? Because people will say, uh, I mean, I think that presumably lots of people, you know, who, who are left enough that they, they follow Daniel Bessner on Twitter uh, are, uh, you know, would, would say, like, if, if confronted with the question at this point, look, should the United States have hundreds of military bases scattered all around the world? Should we be intervening in other countries all the time? Uh, they'd say, no, of course not, right? But then uh, if you flatly say, okay, so not ever, uh, then, then it's, it's a lot harder for, for a lot of people to, to sign on to this because this is so ingrained in our political culture uh, that, you know, like, um, you know, I mean, one of the, I mean, certainly one of the strangest experiences along these lines in my life was uh, when I was, um, uh, I was teaching in South Korea and, uh, and there had just been uh, actually a uh, U.S. South Korean military exercise that had, uh, that had involved um, uh, firing on this unoccupied, but, you know, but like that involved going into what, what uh, the North Koreans regarded as North Korean territory, although nobody was there. Uh, and um, the, uh, and the North Koreans responded uh, by, by actually like, firing live ammunition on a place where a bunch of people actually did live and a few of them died and a bunch of them fled uh, the, you know, to the, uh, the other side of the country, right? Cause uh, most South Koreans live right by the border. Uh, and, um, and then uh, the, the response, um, I mean, one, it was just bizarre, like seeing how blase most Koreans I knew were about this. Like, Oh yeah, that kind of sucks. This happens. Right. Uh, but then, then the response, the South Korean response was to like, basically fire a few shells back and say, don't do it again. Uh, and and I, I told my students the next day to put this really into perspective. I come from a country where, you know, when I was a little kid, we uh, invaded Granada because they were building an airport and you never know, right? You know, like that's that's how we're, you know, it's so, yeah. so ingrained in American culture that like, even if you think like, oh yeah, Reagan was going a little nuts with the Granada thing, uh, that the idea that this is just fundamentally something that we're not in the business of doing, uh, is is just really uh, outs really almost outside of the realm of what's thinkable for most I, people. And I think that's right. I mean, like, I think it's also related to this puritanism in American culture. This is like millenarian. The idea that like the goal of the United States is to transform the world, and I think a lot of that is still very much evident. And and, and this sort of um, pro imperialist is, is too much, but like pro doing something is sort of sort of the way that I. Like the idea that the United States needs to like do something, um, which I think a lot of people on uh, across the political spectrum believe, um, and so I think that sort of thing is like really really difficult to overcome. Yeah, yeah, like or 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 even to try to change the conversation to the extent that like, uh, hey, you want to do something? Here's something you could do. You know, you you could like, uh, there's there's some terrible conflict going on somewhere across the world. You want to do something? a thing that we could do would be to take in every single refugee from that conflict okay. who wants to come here. That, that could count as doing something. But of course, you, yeah, you say that most people roll their eyes because that's just not what they mean. And it's not what they, it's not within the boundaries of what we think of uh, as, as doing something. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, and so the, um, you know, the millennium challenge of nothing else, a good reminder 
uh, that what we actually do have in mind, right, when we talk about doing something, the range of things that we have in mind uh, are, are things that are, um, that are impossible to do uh, in ways that, uh, that don't have tremendous you know, human costs, certainly, and are also impossible to, to do in ways that have costs that can be predicted and managed uh, even, you know, even on the, uh, the, American, the American side, right? I mean, we have an incredibly powerful empire, but that doesn't actually make us omnipotent. Right, right. I mean, I think it, it's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like we shape the world, but we don't control it, you know? And let's, let's stop shaping it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good note to, uh, to end on. Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, and uh, we, uh, when I, uh, yeah, when I have you back on, on the YouTube stream this week, we'll get into the fascism stuff. Cool. All right, Ben. I'll see you at some point this week. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye, brother. All right, that was Daniel Bessner talking about his article, The uh, General Brought Down the American Empire. Uh, good stuff. You can find that in Jacobin. I'm now joined uh, by the great David Griscom, as always, for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. How's it going, Ben? It's good. It's going to be uh, uh, bourbon would be more on brand for Outlaws and Revolutionaries, but uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a long day, so uh, yeah, <laughs> this is the uh, going uh, to drink the Ardbeg that's here. So. Oh, nice. Dude, I've been on this Romans Creek. I don't know if you ever had that before, but it's uh, some high quality bourbon, small nice. small scale. I think it's the same uh, distillery as where they make uh, Pappy Van Winkle, but don't uh, okay, yeah, that's don't quote stuff. me on that. Nice. So, um, be uh, before we uh, we get into the music, I, I did just want to share with people. Uh, so uh, earlier uh, today, uh, as we're recording this. Um, you uh, you shared this this tweet with me that I'm, I'm not even going to say uh, who tweeted it because mm-hmm. uh, I might have um, uh, I, I don't want to uh, I don't I don't want to direct yeah, you know, hatred toward this one person I, I don't I don't want to direct uh, hatred towards this person uh, I might have accidentally done a little bit of that uh, earlier anyway uh, so uh, so but I, I will just say what the what the tweet says right so uh, it was a a discussion of, uh, of MAGA voters, and this person says, and I quote, uh, I saw a documentary that explored the question about why black people didn't turn to nationalist populism like whites did in the places where factories closed. Answer was basically that white people have unreasonable expectations about how easy their lives would be. And then I can't read it anymore because the person, um, uh, after I said something about this earlier, they uh um, they, they said, you know, set their Twitter account to, uh, to private, which is why I feel bad about it. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say who they are, but, uh, uh, but, uh, in the, in the subsequent tweets, as I recall, they go into explain that the meaning of people thinking that they're, uh, having unrealistic expectations about how easy their lives would be was that they could graduate from high school and then get a job <laughs> at a factory, which by the way, um, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I've, I've never, uh, had that dubious pleasure myself, but, uh, but I certainly know people who've had jobs at factories. And if you, uh, if you associate that with having an easy life, I just don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you know, just to jump on it, it's like, it's, it's a very frustrating, uh, sentiment. And again, not to direct this at one person, it's actually just more of 
this is somebody saying something that actually is said a lot and it's a kind of way of thinking that I think is really harmful because look, there are a lot of like in-depth studies, like, you know, look at like Malika Jamali's work on like Rust Belt voters. And, you know, there has been this mythology of like who the Trump voter is. And I think there's nothing wrong uh, with pointing that out. But when you're operating from, you know, the kind of like realm of speculation, which this person is with this, this tweet, it's so unhelpful to take this position, which is essentially, um, you know, that people advocating for fair wages, time off of work, uh, the expectation <laughs> that your children should be able to, you know, attend a school, um, you know, that you shouldn't be mired in debt and, you know, be, have your house foreclosed on, that those are unreasonable expectations. And it, it's just, it's frustrating how successful this, this messaging has been, um, you know, which is sort of like, you know, it counters itself in like a kind of progressive, you know, argument that it's like, oh, you know, people need to recognize the extreme racial inequities in society, which of course they need to do. Um, but but what's so weird about this argument is that like to achieve like racial equality or to fight against white supremacy, uh, we actually need to lower the standard of living for working class people across yeah. the country, right? It's like, that, that's like, that's not a revolutionary no, or a radical that, perspective. It's quite actually reactionary. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I mean, like that's, I mean, Presumably, like, that's the opposite of the kind of equality that anybody should want. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like uh, if the, um, you know, if, if the grand success of the civil rights movement had been, uh, had been making, like, everybody uh, use the substandard facilities, you know, that black people have been used, forced to use under Jim Crow, you know, like, that's, that's, not, that's not a victory, right? Like, and, and, and similarly here... Uh, and again, I, I think that like the thing about this tweet is not that it's like is is not what's particular to it. It's it's what's like it's that it's such a perfect distillation yeah. of uh, of what we've been seeing so much uh, in the last few years, which is this this vision of of you know liberalism or progressivism that says uh, that uh, uh, that you know one fetishizes uh, non-white people in a way that's actually like you know, pretty sketchy in itself, right? You know, mm-hmm. that, uh, and, uh, and two, uh, that it says, and again, the, the issue here is not actually like how accurate it is that like uh, that people in areas with factory layoffs actually have gravitated towards this mega stuff or not, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not the point. The point is that they're saying that thinking that somebody who hasn't, won the rat race to secure one of the few positions that are available in the professional managerial class, thinking that nonetheless they should be able to work hard and by working hard, make a good living and support their family and have their Mm. needs met is having unrealistic expectations about (laughs) how how your life should go is like, God damn it. That that is just like drinking in the capitalist realism and, and just, just into your soul. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, this is like Tori Reid's like whole point is that there's been this kind of like revisionist history, for example, of the New Deal, that the New Deal was, you know, the, the New Deal was only possible like through enacting like a form of, uh, you know, of, of being like, a, you know, racist essentially, right? It's just like, you know, because the, the outcomes like were not enjoyed uh, equally across these different populations. The problem is that like basic social democratic programs themselves, um, you know, are the problem instead of what Tori Reid says, like the problem with the, uh, with the New Deal is that it wasn't universal enough, right? The problem with yeah. the New Deal was when it was being, uh, you know, leveled out or uh, distributed very unequally. Uh, and like the answer to that is, you know, actually more universalism. And, you know, it's just like, it's just a 
is yeah, a really well, important. Yeah. Also, just on that historical note, it is really worth worth noting a couple things that often get left out of this discussion, which are that that uh, they, that having social insurance programs uh, leave out, for example, a lot of agricultural workers is actually mm. pretty common, uh, even in a lot of European countries. Uh, where the dynamics weren't like racialized the way that they were with the kind of Jim Crow apartheid that you had in the U.S. just because these sort of reactionary big landowners like exerted lots of political influence in lots of countries. Right? Yeah. Like that's, 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 a pretty, that's a pretty common dynamic. But then the second thing is that, yeah, it is true that because of these, uh, you know, very racialized uh, power structures, especially in the South, uh, you know, not solely there, but like the ones that are most relevant to these uh, these kind of carve-outs for the New Deal, that, mm -hmm. uh, that lots of, um, that, that there were people who were, who were sharecroppers, who were domestic servants, who had other positions like this that, uh, that black people were much more likely to hold than white people, uh, who, who were locked out of some of the New Deal benefits. That's true, and it's important, and the Tory Reid thing is obviously the right takeaway from that, but also uh, the New Deal was a massive benefit uh, for, for black workers in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, and especially the combination of the New Deal programs per se and something that was really enabled by the same wave of, of reform, which, which was the, uh, the rise of uh, big industrial unions uh, in, uh, in the, you know, these uh, centers like Detroit, uh, which actually without that, uh, black population uh, patterns in, in the 20th century would be incomprehensible. Right, like, mm -hmm. like, 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 why, why do you get migration? You know that you do at the time that you do, and also voting patterns would be incomprehensible. That the swing to FDR among black voters in 1936 uh, was like the kind of swing that's like you you just don't get like in any in any normal. It was like one of the most dramatic voting changes in American history mm -hmm. uh, because uh, even despite these like ugly compromises with Dixiecrats. Uh, these programs actually did massively benefit uh, a lot of the poorest people uh, in the United States, you know, who are disproportionately black. Uh, so, so this idea that the, uh, that the new deal uh, was, um, you know, was, was somehow like just for white people or it wasn't relevant yeah. to black people or, or, or especially that, it, especially that that shows that universalist programs aren't relevant, you know, to, to black people, uh, you know, which is, which is particularly insidious in a way that gets back to the point of the tweet because when people are saying that, they're saying, "Oh, well, instead of doing these economic programs to uh, to help uh, to help people, uh, you know, who are you know like to help the like great mass of people who are suffering, uh, what you should do is you should just really focus on the social justice issues regarding who mm -hmm. gets to jump from the working class into the professional managerial class, which is what this person thinks." You know, if you have realistic expectations yeah. about how easy your life is, should be, that's what you should have to do. You should have to go to college and go to graduate or professional schools and, and get this by definition, right, like relatively yeah. small number of spots, which is in fact going to leave most poor people out in the cold. And of course, as we know, because the racial dynamics of American history, that's a category that's going to be disproportionately non-white. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's exactly it. And, you know, just people, we all have to be wary and pay attention to this because there is a class of, you know, political commentators and a political class in this country that knows that this is a highly successful way uh, to message with people. Because I just, I just have to say again, it's like, you know, a lot of this stuff actually I think is quite earnest from people who are like, I want to do the right thing and I want to help people. Um, and, you know, there's just this ideology out there that's being pushed, as I was saying, by, you know, political class and a political elite uh, to try to make it seem like actually any kind of, you know, more radical reform or hell, just like returning to a new deal uh, form of politics is, you know, somehow opposed to fighting for like racial justice. Right. And it's just, it's, it's an incredibly disingenuous and, and wicked framing. And we just need to be a little bit bolder. I think about starting to call it out because it's just, it's really unhelpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that, you know, I was repeating here, like that, uh, you know, like, you know, the classic civil rights victories were won by people who saw racial and economic justice as inseparable, right? You yeah. Know, it's the, it's the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, you know, there's a reason why that's the perspective that was had by the people who are the most serious about this. And there's a reason why that's, uh, that's the perspective that's most likely to, to assemble, you know, winning coalitions and anything else. Like, I mean, and this is the part that like really goes, go to what you were just saying about calling it out. Like anything else, like no matter how it disguises itself, right? Like this is, this is just like the ideology of, uh, of a certain kind of narrow band mm-hmm. of, uh, of well-educated professionals, um, you know, which, which, you know, whatever, like, um, you know, is, is a club that in an ambiguous way I've been in, but like, it's, it's, it's not a club that most people ever have been or ever will be in or ever Mm -hmm. could be in because it's, it's like, it's, it's just structurally impossible for you to have an economy where, where most people are, you know, doctors and lawyers and managers and professors like that Mm -hmm. can't happen. And so either you want to do something for everybody else, right. Or you don't. And that's, and that's what it gets down to. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, actually, this this all reminds me. I, sh- I should plug that uh, that you did a really good video for uh, for Jacobin. Uh, you and I have both been doing these uh, quick takes for the Jacobin mm-hmm. YouTube channel, uh, and uh, and you just did one on uh, how uh, socialism can win in Texas, and people should check that out. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. that. Was a fun one for sure. I was the uh, frustrating subject matter because we sort of broke down uh, Joe Biden and the kind of state. Democratic Party and National Democratic Party's complete failure of a strategy, but hopeful in the sense that, uh, you know, I try to lay out a little, little bit of a groundwork for what we can do differently and when. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the pitch, uh, like let's, let's, let's not, uh, let's not say anything that'll spook anybody who lives in the suburb. Uh, shockingly enough, uh, you know, like, like 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 that doesn't deliver blowouts like i don't know i don't know know what they were thinking (laughs) it's just lazy i mean honestly not to go too far it's just lazy man it's just thinking that after being completely eviscerated uh, by the rise of george bush in the state a state that was solidly blue forever right um that somehow you're just going to have this demographic shift and you're just going to somehow you know one day wake up and like oh man the state's completely different instead of having to do what you should always want to do in politics which is campaign 
and show people why you're going to improve their lives and, you know, build a political organization that are in touch with working people. You know, they don't want to do any of that. There is just like this euphoria about this strategy, you know, the demographics are destiny, which is just showing um, in real time to be a real disaster. And one that I think um, could be really disastrous for the Democrats in the party because the Republicans are starting to outflank them. Um, with, you know, with groups like, you know, specifically Latinos. I mean, Democrats are still winning by large margins there, but like the Republicans are eating into those, those margins big time. And you can actually see a situation where, you know, you know, those, those populations just really flip uh, in a way that would be and devastating. It's so bizarre to just, to just count on, like when people say demographics is destiny, like they're just counting on all Republican candidates forever forward, like, you know, for eternity being exactly as openly racist as they are now. Yeah. And, and also, like, I might, why, why would you think they're going to, they're going to cooperate with that? Like if they were really starting to lose every election, don't you think they would adjust? Yeah, no, I think so. That's hundred percent right. And I would also just add, um, and then even if you believe that uh, just like specifically in the, in the state of Texas doing the party is doing everything that it can do to keep out, you know, like Latino organizers, like into positions of leadership in the party is it's like, you know, they're not even following through with their own, uh, you know, prescription of, uh, you know, what the path forward is. It's a disaster. Um, but that yeah. is an opportunity for us to beat them, you know, <laughs> no, fair that's enough. how I look at fair it. Enough. I like that. Well, uh, cycling back to uh, uh, expectations about how hard one's life is going to be. Let's talk about country music. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So, yeah. What got this week? We got we got one of my personal favorites. Uh, a little bit different from the ones we've been doing in the sense that this guy's you know younger um, and he's still making music today. Jamie Johnson. Uh, Jamie Johnson is one of my favorite artists. I've been lucky to see him play multiple times. Seen him play with Willie Nelson, which was a complete. Uh, mind-bending uh, performance in a wonderful evening. Uh, he's by far one of my favorite uh, country music artists, uh, not least because he was really the person who was like my bridge uh, from the kind of pop, you know, garbage I was listening to, you know, on the radio uh, to, you know, this real outlaw country. Not that I hadn't listened to it before growing up and had a love for it, but he really like built that bridge for me um, in my early teens. But yeah, man. So Jamie Johnson, uh, you know, he's contemporary, but he definitely is in the outlaw music spirit. And I can't remember who he was quoting, but he was saying in an interview that outlaw country, you know, it's less of a style and it's very much an attitude. Because if you think about people who we consider to be outlaw countries, like George Jones, you know, who is a very traditional country in a lot of ways, Waylon Jennings, who's like, you know, rock and roll, uh, Willie Nelson, who, you know, is Willie Nelson and it's, you know, he's a, in a category of his own. Anyways, the point is like, there's no like, Oh, this is the style that if you hear this certain sound, this is outlaw country. Right. It was really about people who were breaking the rules and standing up against the record executives and making their own kind of music and saying, you know, I'm not going to do it that way. Um, so I, I love that definition that he gave. Um, and he, you know, hundred percent is one of these people um, who, you know, lived at outlaw creed. Uh, one of a favorite song of mine is a song he, he wrote uh, between uh, Jennings and Jones, uh, which is, you know, being between Waylon Jennings and George Jones. Uh, and he says, you know, well, the day job I landed felt just like a jail. I couldn't seem to break out with that hammer and nail. I spent all my nights in some old honky tonk somewhere between Jennings and Jones. And it's just like, you know, that's, that's real as it gets. I mean, that's, uh, that's not only knowing the music, but also knowing the people who are out there listening to the, to the tunes. Um, you know, and it was like, and that was Jamie Johnson's life. Um, his, his first real big record. Um, I'm, I, I wonder if this will work, but, uh, 
<laughs> I can't do it. Uh, um, kind of for a second, yeah. Yeah, no, I keep on trying. I don't know why I think it's going to work this time. But um, his his first big record was uh, a record called That Lonesome Song, mm. um, which came out in 2008. And uh, I got to say, it's probably, I think it's definitely the best country music record uh, that came out at least by anybody new in the 2000s. I probably, I might even put it in there as one of the best country records that's been put out in the last 20 years, just in this like uniqueness and just breaking from the garbage, honestly, that was coming out. Um, but he wrote that album uh, after, so he had a, had basically had limited commercial success. Um, he had, uh, you know, just sort of been rolling around Nashville for a little bit, writing songs here and there that got picked up, but nothing really happened. And uh, he wrote a song called Honky Tonk, Badonkadonk. And if you're not from the South, you probably haven't heard it, but it was a Trace Adkins song. Um, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just pop country through and through. It's a little funny. I liked it back then, but it's not the music that he wanted to be making. Um, and also before he put out Lonesome Song, he did write uh, George Strait's uh, Give It Away. Uh, which he does an incredible, uh, Jamie Johnson does an incredible live version of that, which you can find on YouTube that I think rivals uh, the George, uh, no offense to the King. It's a recording of it. But anyways, like those were his commercial success. And, you know, he was going through this nasty divorce. Um, he was making music and a lot of it wasn't music that he really liked. He had had this record that came out that he, it was very much overwritten in the kind of like Nashville scene, you know, kind of put him in a cowboy hat, whole, you know, whole deal. He's from Alabama. It's like, you know what I mean? Like kind of like yeah. stereotypical, okay we'll make you a star here's like our template and it didn't work for him uh, it didn't work for the record company either because they dropped him after none of his uh, singles got picked up um you know and he was just drinking a lot uh he thought to himself like this is no way to live so he spent a year like completely sober and wrote this album uh, lonesome song uh and man i'm telling you that album brought something out of me it was really it came out in such a dark time in country music when it was just so uh, Pompey and when Jamie, Jamie Johnson first started showing up on the radio or on like CMT, it was just, you were being transported to another time, just another, you know, uh, another present in a lot of ways where country music hadn't taken this kind of poppy route and returned to its like soul. Um, that lonesome song, the, you know, the title song of this album, man, it's just a badass track. People need to, you know, definitely check it out. It's a beautiful, soulful, you know, it's about a song that, you know, no one else can sing along to because it's a lonesome song. It's just like railroad country, outlaw country, uh, you know, Dobro, all that stuff. Um, the song people might be familiar with because this is what sort of drove this record to fame was In Color, um, which is a really beautiful song about, you know, looking at some pictures with your grandfather and he's remembering all these incredible moments in his life. That's the one that probably, you know, uh, straddles that line between the kind of pop country of the era and the rest of the album. But I'm telling you, it's, it's a through and through a phenomenal track and it has its, its place on the record. Um, but, you know, the rest of that Lonesome song is great. Uh, you know, a lot of good divorced dad songs in it. Mowing Down the Roses is a song about him mowing down the roses that his ex-wife planted in the yard. You know, just like a pure kind of like angry drunk, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of going through a divorce. Um, you know, it's just, it's an album too, in the pure sense, like all the songs sort of blend into each other. There's sort of bonus tracks in between, um, you know, the first half and the second half. A lot of just sort of like, you know, riffing going on. Um, which is really beautiful. And it's just, you know, at a time where records too, like the idea of putting out a record and something that you listen to from start to finish is starting to die out. Um, it was a really incredible thing uh, to do. And like, I listened to that on CD cause like the vinyl 
movement hadn't really blown up then. And even on CD, it was such a, you know, such a treat to just put on track one and listen all the way through to uh, the final song. There is between Jennings and Jones. Uh, another couple of good songs from that album, the last Cowboys phenomenal. Um, women is a great, uh, a great jam. Um, High cost of living is a uh, incredible moving song about sort of being down and out and just sort of waking up hung over in your car um, and realizing that you need to, to find a change. There's a line in there where he's looking at a cross, uh, realizing that he was lost, you know, just good country music about, you know, sort of being at your bottom and sort of realizing, uh, you know, something else needs to happen. But, you know, just somebody who gets who gets what uh, life's like. And, you know, Jamie Johnson, he grew up in Alabama. Um, his, he learned to sing in the church. Uh, his dad had a guitar that he was never allowed to touch. Um, he doesn't think it was anything too fancy, but it was just, you know, something that was too holy for him to ever play as a little kid. Um, he, you know, after high school, he went off into the Marines. Um, he spent years in Nashville, just working construction jobs, trying to break in, playing out, you know, beat down hockey tonks. As I said earlier, a little success here and there, but you know how that life goes. It's like you get a check and they don't get nothing for years at a time. Um, and, you know, then he comes out with, a, you know, 2000, his 2008, that lonesome song. Um, but I, I must suggest that people are interested in listening to him. You really got to get into his performances on YouTube. As Ben knows all too well, I'm very prone to send out a few of Jamie's uh, tracks on a late night thumper. I mean, he he is incredible on the guitar um, and he, it really lends itself to those live performances. Um, some of his great live performances on YouTube to check out is uh, he does a cover of Leonard Skinner's uh, Four Walls of Rayford, um, which for people who aren't familiar with that song, it's just a real human song about a, a veteran who comes back from Vietnam um, and he just can't get back in society. Um, he has this line here that always gets me. It goes, uh, well, when Vietnam was over, there was no work here for me. I had a pretty wife awaiting and the two kids I had to feed. I'm one of America's heroes. And when they shoot me down, because he's going to be executed, won't they fly old glory proudly and put my medals in the ground? Uh, I'm coming home to see Jesus. Well, it feels so close this time. Please take mercy on the soldier from the Florida Georgia line. And then, you know, whatever people want to get worked up about, you know, anything praising the troops, it's very much, you know, getting in touch with a kind of a real person. It's people who came back and they, there's no opportunity in the society. And a lot of people turn to like petty crime um, and punishments are very hard down South. Um, and just a couple more before we, and uh, he came with another album, the guitar uh, song, which is, is a good album. It's not as great as the lonesome song, but uh, there's a lot more like kind of working class, uh, mentality and anger in that I wanted to share. One of my favorite songs from it is a song called uh, Poor Man's Blues, um, where he's basically talking about his confrontation with a rich guy um, that he's seeing. He says, uh, talking about this rich man, and he thinks his money rules this world and he don't give a damn about a low-class backwoods country boy from deep South Alabama. He uses folks like me just to keep his sorry ass amused. Well, son, you better watch your back when a poor man gets the blues. <laughs> and it's definitely, I put that up there with Oni in a lot of ways, just like kind of, you know, uh, working class people being pissed at the rich folks. Um, I got to say, uh, his guitar is a really fun thing. Um, he, his guitar, Old Maple, um, is uh, Epiphone EJ200. I don't know if many people will be familiar with that, but let me share the screen real. Oh, never mind. I can't do that. Um, check it out. Old Maple is his guitar. I have the exact same guitar because I figured if it's good enough for Jamie, it's good enough for me. He picked it up for like $400. It's a cheap guitar uh, when he got out of the Marines. It's a big-ass jumbo guitar, which is why I love it and why he likes it too. Um, but before he was big, he got Willie Nelson to sign it. 
uh, outside of a concert in Alabama. And so you have Willie Nelson's signature on it, and he made that a kind of tradition wherever he played with one of the greats, he gets him to sign it. So his guitar that he plays on is just covered in signatures. And I always love that uh, when you see guys who, uh, you know, they really love, you know, they love what they're doing. They love being able to play with people. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, just last couple of quick things, uh, just because it's worth noting, you know, the kind of controversy thing. He got in a lot of trouble recently because he uh, canceled a concert in Myrtle Beach uh, because he was so pissed because the House of Blues there was making his band go through metal detectors and he didn't appreciate being treated like a terrorist, <laughs> uh, which is a funny story, but uh, a story that, uh, you know, and he's a little bit different from these other guys. I wouldn't try to paint his politics one way or the other. I think it's kind of... Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of that free spirited American style that, you know, I appreciate. Um, but a story that I really do like, um, so he refused to play this concert. He's delayed it by a real long time. I can't remember where I'm thinking Oklahoma, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, he refused to play this concert because someone was in there, you know, flying one of those blue lives matter flags. Um, and he goes up there and he says, I don't know what that flag means to you, but the flag I stand for is red, white, and blue. <laughs> Basically got the crowd to force that person to lower into a blue and black flag and get out of there. Um, which was fun. And yeah, man, I've been lucky to see him play live. Um, he's incredible, still playing. His his music is worth checking out. And, you know, a good example of how, you know, the music is in a rough place right now, but it's not dead by any stretch of the imagination. I like that. I uh, can't really improve on that as a uh, <laughs> closing line for the segment. Uh, thank you, David. Always really appreciate it. Of course, man. See you soon, brother. See ya. That was the great David Griscom uh, joining us as always uh, for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Before that, uh, you uh, heard uh, my former co-host of my previous podcast, uh, Adam Proctor, um, who is, is still hosting Dead, Pit Dead Pundit Society. You should check that out. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, actually managing to, uh, to give me some useful sense of perspective uh, about uh, the um, uh, the the state of the left, you know, going going forward, that the um, you know that the the things that we thought we'd planted and you know were up, uprooted, but the uh, the the soil is just as fertile. So uh, so that actually you know the whole the whole thing actually did oddly enough work out to sort of be a pep talk, uh, and um, then uh, uh, Daniel Bessner, frequent guest, friend of the show, uh, talking about uh, his Jacobin article, the general who brought down. Uh, the uh, the American Empire. Uh, so I am, um, yeah. So uh, there's been some good stuff going on. Uh, I had a um, a debate uh, with uh, the pro life activist K Fellows, uh, which uh, premiered on the Give Them an Argument YouTube channel uh, on um, whenever that was uh, uh, Tuesday, I believe. Uh, also, uh, we did the, uh, the very first, um, Sopranos recap bonus episode, uh, with, um, uh, Nando Vila, Wozni, Big Waz, Lombre, uh, and, uh, and Mike Racine, uh, which, uh, you know, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you've seen it on your podcast feed. If you're watching it on YouTube, uh, you should, uh, you should go uh, check it out on, uh, on the YouTube channel. 
that was a lot of fun and really looking forward to it. Uh, should we only we were talking about doing the first two episodes, but we only got through the first episode, so it'll, it'll be a long, slow ride. But but it's one that I'm looking forward to. Uh, season one, episode two, 46 long. We're going to be talking about sometime in December. Um, that first one was just released right away to the YouTube channel in the future uh, since we're going to be doing more patron bonus content. So it's probably going to go to patrons first and then get unlocked in a week or something. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of patron bonus content, uh, there is uh, uh, there is going to be a, a conversation I already had but hasn't been released, edited, and released yet uh, with uh, Jesse Single from Blocked and Reported. Uh, where we uh, we got into uh, a lot of uh, the, the kind of controversies that he often covers there. Uh, I made my case to uh, to Jesse uh, that uh, Barry Weiss uh, is, uh, I believe the way I put it, was uh, legitimately one of the stupidest pieces of shit who's ever been given uh, a major media platform. Uh, and he gave me a more nuanced take on that controversy. Uh, we, you know, we also talked about Glenn Greenwald, uh, some internet free speech stuff, police abolitionism, a lot of other things. So uh, good stuff. Uh, check that out. Uh, if you're on the Patreon, you know, I've been trying to, you know, everybody, you know, just on the podcast feed on the YouTube channel, uh, everybody's always going to get the full episode every single week. I'm never going to paywall any part of this. Um, but uh, I have been trying to, to produce more uh, good uh, uh, patron stuff uh, because I am immensely grateful for the solidarity and support for people who do sign on to the Patreon. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously that, that helps us uh, pay everybody who's on the show, uh, not all of whom are getting paid yet, but, you know, really want everybody who, who works on this to be getting a living wage from it. Ultimately, I would like to uh, get one myself so I can do more of this uh, and less teaching. Uh, but, um, but in any case, uh, so if you can do that, uh, the, uh, it's the monthly cost of a milkshake, the 50s nostalgia diner in Pulp Fiction. Uh, so please do consider that. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you can't, uh, please uh, rate or review wherever you're listening to this as a podcast or like and subscribe on YouTube. Those things do make a, a difference. Uh, and, and I've been really happy to see how many people have already been doing uh, all of those things in the very short time that the uh, podcast uh, has existed. Uh, so uh, not entirely uh, – okay, well, I guess I'll say this, right, that uh, coming up next week, the great Anna Kasparian uh, is returning to uh, the podcast. So I am really looking forward uh, to, uh, to that conversation. Um, and um, coming up – at the, uh, at the beginning of December sometime, I'm going to be doing a debate about worker cooperatives and capitalism with Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman. Uh, I, watched a, uh, I watched a debate that, uh, that David Friedman did with a friend of the show, Richard Wolf, uh, a, a while back, uh, and, uh, and I really wanted to take a crack at him, so that should be coming up at the beginning of December sometime. Uh, a little later in December, speaking of Richard Wolf, I'm going to be participating in a kind of online academic conference sort of thing that we're doing to uh, honor the legacy of Michael Brooks. So basically a bunch of academics who were on the Michael Brooks show uh, over the years uh, are going to be doing something, again, that's going to be online. It's going to be happening in December. I'm not 100% sure about the schedule on that, but I will certainly update you guys uh, when uh, when I have more information. But meanwhile, just like really sincerely, uh, Thank you for watching. Thank you for liking and subscribing. Thank you to the people who have signed on as patrons. Uh, it all means a lot to me. 
Uh, I will see you guys next week. Left is best. <laughs>